want solutions, you must focus your mind. Introducing your host, Mason Hargrave. This week, I sit down with Noel Goddard, CEO of QNECT, Portfolio Manager at Accelerate New York, Investment Advisor of the Catalytic Impact Foundation, and Board Member of both Monogram Orthopedics as well as MCOR for Climate Tech. She is formerly the CTO of Symbiotic Health, Director of Operations at Biolabs, and CEO and founder of Goddard Labs at Stony Brook University. Academically, she was first a PhD student in physics and biology here at the Rockefeller University under Albert Liebschabert, completed a postdoc under George Church at Harvard, and became an assistant professor of physics at Hunter College. I met Noelle on Clubhouse in a room on transitioning from academia to industry. We discovered we were connected via a previous guest on the podcast, Marcelo Magnasco, who was also a student of Albert's. Noel is broadly knowledgeable about everything from foundational math and physics through business and finance and everything in between. I learned a ton from this interview, and I'm sure you will as well. Without further ado, I introduce to you, Noel Goddard. You are an alumni of the Rockefeller University, and you were trained under Albert Liebschaber. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? Because old school Rockefeller or older school Rockefeller, I mean, it's not that long ago, um, but it's always interesting to hear how culture, compare and contrast culture of a university over time. So uh, if you walked in, maybe just so we can set the scene, if we walked into the lab where you did your thesis, what would we see? What would it look like? So um, I started here in 1999. Yep. And uh, Albert had three laboratories in the northernmost building. Yep. Uh, There was one on the second floor, um, one on the lowest basement level. And then uh, sort of uh, office space, et cetera, right in, in the center. So so um, his basement lab, which is where I was, uh, had a lot of photon counting gear. So it was half was dark all the time. Completely so, dark? Uh, completely dark. So As basically. in like multiple folded metal to keep any <laughs> photons out? We're talking zero photon dark? No, no. So not okay. zero photon dark, but at least the lights off permanently in one half of the lab. And it was in okay. the sub-basement. So it was never, it was very odd. So that's where my desk was. Yes. It was very glorious, right? Oh, you had, <laughs> you, you were in the dark half? No, no. But I was in the, the room that had the light to the side of the dark half. Got it, got And it. then uh, what was very interesting is that there were all of these large shelves on the side. And actually Albert had brought all of his old hydrodynamics equipment from both Princeton and the University of Chicago. And they were stacked in on the walls, uh, these like giant bomb calorimeters and other things. Is this the famous equipment from the Wolf Prize winning experiments? <laughs> so uh, so the Wolf Prize winning experiments, from my understanding, because you know the, the legend has it that he had, you know, this little box he would carry around with him, which was his little helium box, right? And we all know that anything that needs to be cooled has a very large amount of infrastructure which needs to go around it, right? Yes, but, the but little you know, box is <laughs> what goes into a giant fridge, right? Right, <laughs> a, cry- and, and a cryo. Actually, can you can you? This is this is a funny. This, I just noticed this quirk. So I, I I whenever there's a whenever there's jargon that's like uncommon, mm-hmm. I like to point it out just because it's of fun. Of course, of course. So. For everyone else, everyone else thinks they know what a fridge is. Yes, but in <laughs> physics, a fridge means. <laughs> well, yeah, what does it what does what does it mean yeah. when you're a, when you do cryo? Yeah. What does it mean? Yeah, Cryogens so, meaning very very cold things. Exactly. So in order to get anything uh, to 
close to absolute zero. Yep. You need a tremendous amount of infrastructure, which we would call cryogenics, right? Right. Um, which, again, can be multiple stages depending on how cold you actually want to go. Right. And I suppose the one that we see most often now in popular uh, literature for, I don't, you know, again, for the photos that we see from day to day is actually for quantum computing. Right. So you constantly see the smoke from, you know, again, exhaust coming off of one of these cryogenic systems whenever they take out the large chandelier systems, right, that, uh, that actually run in that. Totally. But, the, but these cost millions of dollars. Right. And uh, for physicists, because Albert was actually a cryo uh, low-temp physicist for right. a while, right, before he ended up doing the wolf-winning uh, wolf experiments. Right, right, right. right. Um, the wolf prize, uh, for those who don't know, yes. is a private prize in physics. So yes. that's why. So uh, what Albert is uh, most famous for is really spending time to understand the uh, rules and transitions experimentally between chaos and order right and a super cooled helium system and and the experiment itself was the size of a matchbox but it needed to be placed in something that was again depending on how big the, the freezers were in those days right right these fridges are things which look like you know the at at best, the large nitrogen tanks that we see, like on the sidewalks, that you know are cooling down the fiber optics below. Yeah, right. That are these, uh, again, something which is about the size of, of a refrigerator, but it's nothing but <laughs> giant tanks of, tanks of nitrogen and multi-stage vacuum. Right. right so he would carry this yeah, in his pocket, yes. but it was. Yeah. Um, excuse me. Yeah, but he carried it around because it was a great way to advertise, I think, to everyone else the elegance of trying to to search for something that was very fundamental. And I think that probably uh, I had I had been trained in a laboratory in uh, Polytechnic University, which uh, was fabulous for, for being able to do. We did all of our own machining. We did all of our own instrument building. It was a, a really wonderful laboratory to learn in, and it was a very structured laboratory. So that was a laboratory of Stephen Arnold, who's still at Polytechnic right, right. now. And we, we talked about this again just off camera before we started, who did levitated droplet studies. And it was a wonderful laboratory to train in. Mm -hmm. When I came to Albert's lab, what was really interesting is that all of that training was incredibly important for having a strong foundation. But Albert was very focused on trying to find elegant problems to solve. And I think there are scientists that are very much committed to looking for how to tease apart something which is an understood phenomenon or something like this, where they want to get into it at a deeper level and it's not necessarily buying more expensive equipment that's going to get you there. Right. So I think one of the, the, the differences I would say between what Rockefeller seems to me now versus what it was before mm -hmm. is that biology by and large has become a science where having the next best equipment drives innovation. Yep, absolutely. And uh, as you go back in the history of Rockefeller, and particularly physics at Rockefeller, physicists were enabling discoveries through the instruments they were building for through their interest in basic physics, mm. which would then be applied to living systems, which would then open up you know these sort of interesting, elegant solutions. And Albert came to biophysics by going you know first from his his cold physics into then more chaos and turbulence right turbulence into living systems and condensed matter and then doing some very beautiful elegant membrane experiments which were uh, is a lot of the work that he was doing at Princeton right and at that time the Center for Physics and Biology was being put together here led by Mitchell Feigenbaum mm -hmm. 
Also, uh, so for the audience, uh, because Albert and Mitchell are, are very closely related in terms of that helium experiment. Right. So um, is the physical instantiation yes. of Feigenbaum. Liebschaber found the physical instantiation of Feigenbaum's theory about the period doubling route to chaos. Exactly. Which is extraordinary. Right. And to do those experiments in those days was not trivial. No, this, this is so again, we take it for granted because of what we've been talking about, about what's possible now in terms of quantum systems. Right. To be able to isolate noise in ways that were simply not available in those days and precision machining, right? which is which was simply not avail available at the levels which we do today, right? Absolutely. So, so yeah, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very special time. So Albert, I think, uh, would much rather, I mean, through his entire life, he was always looking for an interesting problem to solve in an elegant way. Right. And uh, what, when he used to teach here, uh, he, he has this extraordinary collection of antiquarian scientific manuscripts. I was just told about this. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen it? Uh, yes. So he, he keeps many of them in his apartment. And I think at some point there was some discussion about whether he would donate them to like the Yale library or something like this. But um, Marce he, Marcelo, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say this. I'm not going to say it. Never mind. We might cut it out. <laughs> Scratch that. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. I'm, I'm realizing I'm not sure what is said in confidence and isn't. So I won't mention anything. So so one of the interesting things about the the taking a class from Albert Right. Is that he very often has some original manuscripts with, for instance, from Carnot or something. Right. Where he will Xerox them in those days to make transparencies for 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 overheads, you know, to show the class. <laughs> <laughs> I heard he has a first edition copy of Principia Mathematica. Yes. The 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 famed Isaac Newton's discovery of calculus. Yes. Uh, I hear he also has a a letter from. Oh gosh, uh, it must have been from from who to who? It was like from from Poincaré. It was some from Russian fellow to Poincaré. I can't remember who was the Russian fellow, um, mm -hmm. but some but some clearly. I'll kick myself and I'll remember it later. But um, but the question is, what do we learn from from studying older manuscripts? And again, I think what what's important about it to Albert and what should be important to us as scientists yeah. is that we aren't usually the first people to have observed something that we're trying to solve. I right. mean, we, again, as we go more and more molecular, that's obviously not something that they were doing centuries ago. Right. But there are some extremely interesting approaches to, to things, even like biophysics. So, you know, Schrodinger wrote, you know, the what is life book in the mid forties. Uh, so uh, what is Life uh, mm -hmm. by Schrodinger is written, I think, 44. What's, the, what's, what's that book? I don't think I'm familiar. Okay, so it's a, it's a very small manuscript. Okay. And you can tell from the date that it was written, of course, in the wake of what was happening in the war. Yep. And uh, it was sort of the first treatise on what Schrodinger saw as a, an interesting next step mm -hmm. in physics. And that was to start exploring the physics of living systems. Right. And what's very interesting about it, this precedes the discovery of, of DNA. Mm-hmm and understanding heritability, et cetera. Right. Uh, he predicts that the uh, genetic material that must underlie heredity is some sort of aperiodic crystal. So that was really interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's very interesting. And then the second thing is that he well, really- can, can you, okay, aperiodic crystal. That's not something that, that yes. high school me would have known. So yes. what, what does that mean? So uh, the idea so to have some type of aperiodic structure means that it doesn't repeat identically. 
-hmm. And uh, with DNA, you have the four bases, which are the four letters that we see. And those can be in any arrangement. So since they don't repeat in the exact same pattern, it would be aperiodic. Right. So DNA is an aperiodic crystal. Uh, it, it is when it's not in solution, but yes. Yes. yes yeah. Yes, yes, a, yes. So, so the, there's just the point being that without knowing that DNA even existed, yes. he thought that the genetic material of life would have to be an aperiodic crystal. Yes. That somehow this would persist in this way. It's so, a good guess. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, the other thing that he really was curious with was negative entropy. So this concept of, uh, so all of life lives not in equilibri equilibrium thermodynamics, which right. of course we, it's much easier to do mathematically. So the, the idea of the fact that order can come from disorder meant that there had to be something which life produces, which counters the equation. Uh, right. So, can, can so, you, so, so maybe, maybe we can get at those, just underneath those topics real quickly. What is roughly, what is entropy? So it's a sort of measure of the randomness of the system. Right. Uh, so it's a, the concept of that, and it can be used in information, which I think is where you see it most commonly today. So what is that connection between entropy and information? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, in fact, it's maybe fair to say that the same thing, mm -hmm. right? Am I, am I overstepping by saying that the same thing? No. So it's just uh, so if it's always easier to think of it in terms of like probabilities. And right. So the idea is if I have a, a bag of uh, different colored marbles, how, how many different ways could I draw, you know, three marbles out of that bag and get some some sequence of of let's say the marbles have three different colors, right? So, right. so how many combinations of those things exist, which we always think of in terms of probability. But the problem, so now if I want to say what is the total randomness of the system, right? I have to think of how many states could possibly exist of how many ways to draw how many sequences, right? Right. And that contains some level of information because now I've characterized the system as having so many states Got it. and I think basically the so where this all came to play right so information theory Claude Shannon right? Claude Shannon yes. Bell Labs yes Bell Labs shout out <laughs> which my which 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 my uh, undergraduate advisor uh, Arthur Ramirez would never but uh, it, it was it was great every time I would walk in I would get to hear about the heydays of Bell Labs somehow the yeah. conversation would end up on the on Bell Labs in the 80s yes. and all the stuff in the lab it was also a cryogen's lab had AT&T stickers on them because <laughs> they were old AT&T equipment that he brought over to UC Santa Cruz when he made his transition from he made the inverse transition you made mm -hmm. he made the transition from you know, from doing quantum quantum stuff in industry into academia mm -hmm. as a cryogens guy. Yeah, why not? I'm work, we're still working on quantum materials. Yeah. He'd be mad if I called him a cryogens guy. <laughs> I don't think I would. I don't I won't poke that. He's really he's really a quantum materials guy. But anyway, sorry. I, I no, no, no. It's really interesting, and I think well, right. If, transitions are another another topic which we could definitely definitely go through. But Absolutely. for the but for the. Uh, the people who maybe don't know the history of the Bell Labs and connection to information theory and Claude Shannon and all of these other things. I mean, when I first started working with Albert, Albert was part of NEC Labs, so the Nippon Electric Corporation that used to make monitors, NEC, the, the three letters. I, I, I didn't yeah. know that this was a thing. Yes, so NEC had a lab, RCA had a lab called Sarnoff Labs, and these were all, I mean, those two were in New Jersey, so Princeton had uh, NEC Labs. Right. And again, they were built to... These were sort of like a thing, I think, in the 80s, more or less, in the model of Bell Labs, where the idea was take very smart people that understand how to study something that could be related to creating more interesting chips and or structures right. or materials 
put them in a place with a lot of resources and use that as a sort of foundry for ideas. This is this is because is this all kind of hype surrounding the transistor having been developed and everyone wanted to replicate the success of the transistor? I just think there was like, yeah, I was going to say, there's also just a lot of money at that time. And that since Bell Labs had been successful at it, that it seemed to be like the model. Because it yeah. seems, and this is this is an interesting, well, 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 we might jump back to what we were at, but we're getting at something that I think is really interesting, which is the loss of the Industrial Research Institute. Yes. When did it happen? <laughs> Why did it go away? I think this is all part of the the trimming of organizations for ultimate efficiency. And you know, as you as you're starting to go down the road of who can be cut so that we maximize our pro, our our, pro, our progress slash processes, right? Right. I think this has been something that, unfortunately, American industry has been doing for a long time. You know, more profit. More streamlining. I, I I wouldn't even say that it gets more profit, actually. Mm -hmm. And weirdly enough, well, so it it's, it, a, it goes back to this question of like if you're going to support people to create, you can't demand that you create at a certain pace, right? right? You have to because discoveries are not made to deliver. Correct. So that means that you have to be comfortable with the fact that there is some type of of sort of blurry ether, which which is going to happen in in terms of progress. But at the same time, it should be at a known cost. Right. And I think at some point, a lot of American industry decided, why are we paying extra for research and all of these scientists' salaries and health benefits and everything else for them to create at their own pace when we could just sit back and wait for things to bubble up because we, we are established industries and we can simply purchase the things which made it through this sort of triage of, of progress, right? Right. And I think that's literally, unfortunately, the death of the fundamental research labs associated with these larger industrial institutions. Can you, can you, because, because I think I, I use buzzword, buzzwords here, so maybe I can get your help here, which is, can you explain kind of what I am talking about when I say industrial research institutions? What, what, what am I referencing and what, how has it changed? If we can just be really explicit about of course. that. So there was a time when companies, uh, large corporate America, that uh, by the time they had grown to a certain size, were comfortable with the idea of creating uh, sort of independent research entities that would have no sort of mandate beyond producing things which may be future good outlets for the company. Right. Uh, but not necessarily driven to solve a problem which the company had. Right. And Bell Labs is perhaps the most famous of these because they had so many successes. Right. One uh, of which being, am I right in saying the transistor was one uh, of the successes yeah. out of the uh, out yes. of Bell Labs? <laughs> Microphones. I mean, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of things which, right. which were developed over the years, which again started off because they, they had sort of, I would say a no boundaries type philosophy like Rockefeller, which we were talking about earlier. Right. So Rockefeller University, which we're sitting in and we were talking about earlier, yes. Um, the whole concept is there are no departments. Right. Uh, therefore, you should be able to approach any person that has a knowledge base as a potential collaborator. Right. To, to figure out what you're doing. And I think they've still managed to maintain this, right? But the, the, I agree. The, but the research uh, sort of stru the structure of research and the incentivization for how people publish, et cetera, right? obviously is an overlay on top of this sort of creativity. And it's unfortunately not something that 
a single place can control. It's not something that Rockefeller can control. But of course, you know, when um, Sid Strickland, who we will get on eventually, he's, he's, we've been back and forth on dates. Yes. Uh, he's the dean, for yes. those who don't know. Um, and when he was doing his recruiting, he was talking about and comparing and contrasting Rockefeller to Bell Labs mm -hmm. back in the day. His statement was basically that it, they're trying to do the same thing, which is create an open-ended research institute. Yes, um, which I think that it, it certainly was in its earlier years. Right. So I don't know that he needed to create it, but <laughs> but he might needed to. He may need to sort of I don't revive. Think he said create. I think say I, revive, revive, perhaps. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly what wording he used. So I think <laughs> I'm, I'm probably misrepresenting him. But regardless, he had a big thing about Bell Labs in the in, in in the meeting, and of course, this was this was big for me because I could then have the excuse when I made my fateful decision to leave physics because this was the only kind of bio biological university I applied to. Uh, I had to, you know, I had to explain to my, my, my advisor at the time why I, you know, you, he's written all these letters of rec and helped me, help me polish myself for all these physics universities. And why am I going off to this bio place, bio place that he's never heard of? Um, you know, and the, with, with the hope that of course the open door policy was going to be something that was very inspiring. Right. And yeah. turns out, turns out it has been so far. So, so I do uh, think that there's something, and this was supposed to be how Bell Labs and other places run. And right. certainly IBM Research still is quite active, right? So there there are places where this exists. I'd make the argument that although companies are not necessarily supporting laboratories, and by the way, this also happened with pharma, right? Mm. So pharma, uh, as they got larger and larger, decided to also sort of stop doing basic research mm. and acquiring research that was coming out of the startup communities. right? And you see this now in places where, uh, for instance, in the middle of the country, there was once a pharma hub, and now it's actually a contract research organization which services startup companies, which eventually hope to get bought by pharma. Right. Right. And this has been this has been a challenge for 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 me thinking about what I want to do because I was thinking, oh well, I can leave. You know, if if well, I have I have some personal gripes with how academia is structured currently, which is that it really truly is a Ponzi scheme. Where and I'm I'm you know I'll, I'll just come out and say it, and you don't have to endorse this. So you're not you're not in trouble it's your for podcast. saying this. It's my podcast. So so um, where I see that every professor on average produces ten PhDs, and out of those ten PhDs, only one of them can replace the professor who taught them. And the reality is, is that it's actually student PhD students from the top 30 universities that become professors at all the other universities in the entire nation. So if you didn't go to a top 30 university, you're not ever going to be a professor. Right. And if you are at a top 30 university, only one of you will actually end up being a professor at the top 30 university of the 10 people who they produce. And all 10 of those people are likely absolute intellectual assassins. You know, yes. <laughs> but I actually think that the the other part is that the giant lab concept makes yeah. those numbers even worse. So right. So there are at some of the top five schools laboratories which routinely have forty or more postdocs. Right, and uh, yeah. I believe you were in one of those yes, labs. Exactly, you were in the George Church lab at MIT, uh, Harvard, oh, Harvard. But very, it was very, very large. Right. So at the time that I was at George's lab, he probably had about fifty, fifty-five people, and it's. Larger now because he has multiple facilities. Right. But those run much more like companies 
because there are subgroups that are interested in things. In George's case, there are a lot of projects going on. He's a very special case because it's much more of an artist colony style uh, right. approach. But Bob Langer is another one you could think of who's at MIT who routinely has 70 people or more right. in his lab. Uh, the Dizeroth lab at Stanford is this way. Mm -hmm. I've seen some of the structure there. So, um, so there are two, sort of two types of uh, groups that run that are that large. Yeah. Uh, they're the ones that run a little bit more corporate style where you have subgroups that end up working on different projects and kind of have mini lab heads that sort of report up. There are right. like postdocs. Yes. Which out, yeah. is, this is the weird part, right? There are postdocs in these groups that outperform in, in terms of citation metrics, mm -hmm. professors at the university that they're postdocs at. Yes. There are postdocs in a professor's lab who are actually by citation metrics alone, if you're only, yes. if you if that was enough, would outperform other professors in the department they work in. Yes, and that's weird. Absolutely, um, that's part of your Ponzi scheme, right? <laughs> yes. But I think this is the the system. Uh, the goal of the system, right, was to incentivize everyone to go through the system in order to get tenure. There's a prize at the end of all of this, right? Right, and and, and, and this is the issue where I've kind of. I've decided, well, I don't know how much I want this prize, right? Yes. And so I say, okay, well, I'll go into industry and I'll, I'll produce something. And I'm, you know, what industries am I qualified for? It's like biotech, um, biotech, maybe I could get back, get my chops back and get back into the quantum computing industry. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, you know, software engineering. Um, so software engineering be pro being probably the most flat as in the easiest to, for me my, to inject myself into. Um, but for biotech, for pharma, for and for, for these things that I'm kind of closer to being interested in, it turns out that you still need to become a professor so you can generate IP so that IP can get bought so that when it's bought, then it turns into a spinoff company, or at least this is the, this is the trajectory I almost always see. And so it's like, even if you want to go into, you actually don't get to say, I'm going to leave academia and I'm going to go into industry. Right. So Because exactly. you have to become a professor to create the IP that gets bought to get turned into an industrial concept if you want to go to the highest levels of industry. I don't know. This is this is my gripe. I'm not no, sure. No, so I, I think that. I may be pessimistic. So I think that what you're trying, what you're speaking about is basically like there are no Mark Zuckerbergs of, of, of biotech. biotech. Yeah. And the only example of one who tried to do it is Elizabeth Holmes, which we all know the sad end of Theranos. Which died. Yes. Tragically. So it is extremely unusual for someone without an advanced degree to be able to convince others that they have the background in order to solve a problem in biotech. Right. I have one friend who's done it, but yes. and I've and I've known thousands. Mm-hmm of top tier academics. And I only have one friend, Pavel Jeremek, head of Aether Bio. And even then it's not, that's far from guaranteed from, from yes. being a promised. You know, and sometimes you see it in computa yeah. computational biology spin-out companies. So He does computational biology. Yeah. Okay. There, so, wow, there it is. So <laughs> largely because, you know, there's not this sort of pedigree need to establish uh, a, a knowledge base as an expertise and a subset of biology. Right. Which I think that largely the PhD side of molecular biology or any other biology, sub-biology discipline, right, is largely about spending a few years becoming an expert in a, in a set of problems. Right. And those are the problems which now you can be taken seriously because of your pedigree in order to solve in the biotech world. Right. 
but it's it's very difficult to simply have a smart solution to something which you are not sort of a card carrying expert in. Absolutely. And be taken seriously by number one investors, but also number two, uh, the the sort of the the team building side of who's going to play with you in order to make this this right. thing work. Because everybody starts talking about evaluating the team when they look at uh, the the idea of who who is the company right. as the first few steps. And this is true also with intellectual property. Now it is true you could file a patent without having a PhD and it doesn't matter. Right. And uh, no one is going to judge you but the court of law in the end. Right. right. So so there are ways to, uh, I suppose, protect your good ideas without the advanced degree, but raising money to actually start a co- startup company is a little bit of a different thing. But I, I did want to say there's a, there's a new sort of entity in how do you fund interesting ideas in... Uh, corporate America, right, and that's this idea of of not simply corporate venture, but corporations like Johnson and Johnson who are dedicated to supporting some structure for startup companies, right. So, um, and I'm starting to feel in my private dealings, which I can't really discuss, um, some of that support starting to come my way. As in, there are people who are, th- I think, recognizing, oh wait. There are these young, energetic PhD students at, at some of these top labs who have the ability to potentially start up a company who were, if we can catch early in their career, I mean, of course, there's, there's still the selfish nature to this, which is if we can catch early in their career, we can take a bigger chunk of their profits than we can convince a professor to give us, um, you know, <laughs> but, but. So, so intellectual property and who owns what when is another very complicated long prod- podcast topic. But right. yes, keep going. Yeah. So, so for all of you who are thinking about starting a company, always be careful about who owns what before you take it forward. Keep right, going. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 do you have, do you have a specific more specific comment on that? No, I just think that the the realities are uh, no one really recognizes that as a graduate student you have signed that everything you do as we we are working in Rockefeller University. Uh, is Rockefellers, uh, and your your life is theirs uh, while you're here being paid for them, uh, paid by them, and working in their facilities. But when you are not working in their facilities, establishing an, ent- an entity, if you're allowed in your contract, because some don't even allow for moonlighting, right? Yeah. Luckily, Rockefeller has allowed me to moonlight, which yes. has been very, yeah. very. I actually asked this before I was willing to come here. By the way. <laughs> Ultimate freedom. This was this was this was my rule. I, yes. said, I, I you know I was hey I was interested. I mean they, I, I hope that didn't all well, the cable bouncing didn't end up in the audio there it probably <laughs> did. Um, but uh, there there I, I asked this before I was coming in because when I came into the university I had a I was I was the CEO of a failed consultancy called Epsilonics. I ran it into the ground as successfully successfully as completed successfully completed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm still talking to California. California doesn't know that. Doesn't seem to be aware that I have dissolved my company, so I'm still. They would always like to pay a little bit more taxes. Yeah, so, they, they're yeah. still they're taxing a company that doesn't exist. Um, so that's that's fun. I'll deal with that on Sunday on the weekend. Uh, <laughs> but but um, it, regardless, uh, I, this was something that I wanted to make sure of before I got here. But I do should probably check in my contract if I'm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I think that this if is I will a, own anything I make here. No, but this is a it's an important thing which many of us who are in science we don't. We don't focus on legalities. We want to do the science. We want to be enabled to do the science. Right. right. So I, I think, so as you and I were talking about before, 
I spent some years working for a state entity called Accelerate New York yep. that supported very early stage spin out companies who were based on very strong IP. Right. And more often than not, trying to think if we had an example of anyone who was not a PhD level founder, uh, who actually was the scientist. It's unusual. I, I don't think we had one in our portfolio. Right. But just to bounce back to this idea of like what Johnson & Johnson is doing with J-Labs, mm-hmm. um, other pharma companies are supporting it through sort of a, a proxy. So for instance, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb and uh, Sanofi and uh, Berner Ingelheim, they all support uh, scientists that are within entities like Biolabs. Yep. And the idea of these facilities is just very interesting because we all grow up in biology labs having sort of shared resources. And many many labs need similar instrumentation for right. doing molecular biology and cellular biology. Therefore, it's not unusual to share the most expensive facilities. This is the core facilities side Correct. of- Correct. And uh, that can all be managed if you understand how to manage fixed cost. Right. Universities do it, so it's not impossible to imagine that corporate America could decide to do it. Right. And what they get in return, depending on the entity, is sort of first dibs at seeing what you do. Right. And uh, in the most generous form, they take nothing. Right. And in more selfish forms, be careful what you sign. <laughs> Always be careful what you sign. Uh, you may be in a situation where they do actually have some claim because you've used their facilities and other things. But in JLab's case, they're very hands-off. But what you're doing is you're actually getting the opportunity to not only be uh, developing your own product, but actually get screened, basically, like previewed by, by J&J, right. which is very forward-thinking. I don't know. I'm, I'm a big fan of the idea that running these institutions just like running colleges, is a known cost. Right. The facility costs something, the upkeep of the facility and the equipment in it costs something. You need how many humans in order to manage that something. So if you are a large you know, corporate entity in this country, you could decide to do it. And there's no reason that you, you can't do it on the deep tech side. Right. And I think Google, right, has some... So you're seeing it with like Google, Illumina, et cetera. You see corporate entities, particularly in California, who spin out, well, at least offer these opportunities to have spin outs incubate within, you know, small, small sort of facilities. MIT has one called the engine, right? Right. They're definitely the deep tech equivalents, but I think biotech was probably first to the party because we're used to sharing resources. Right. 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 So, and then there's these other models that are interesting. Um, for instance, there's the um, Moderna came out of flagship pioneering, which is a weird model. Is that right. is this- which they just changed? They rebranded themselves as flagship pioneering a few years ago to not to simply be a venture firm, et cetera. But 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 those are that's another interesting way of thinking about how the how interesting early stage ideas get funded. So uh, when you look at venture venture sort of uh, possibilities as you start to have an idea. So you have an idea for company. Right. Who is going to fund this idea? Very often, the first funders who come in are not going to be the ones who are writing a million dollar plus check. Right. But when you start to need that size of check, you're very often going to be talking to venture people. Right. In places like Boston and Stanford, uh, what has been sort of the tradition now that they understand it's a tried and true model 
is that since those schools produce so much interesting IP, which ends up being spun out, why not just locate your venture fund and your scouts near those institutions, have good relationships with the professors, and constantly go and browse? Right. And certainly, I mean, we mentioned George Church earlier. George Church's lab has been a source of dozens upon dozens of startup companies. Back when I was in Epsilonics, I was in early and didn't go anywhere. And I won't even say the company name for this reason. But I was in early conversations with a spinoff company from the George Church Lab. Mm -hmm. But I do think that, um, (laughs) well, I think George uh, also loves to support ideas. Yep. And that's where the artist colony type analogy really fits for him. He's very interested in supporting interesting ideas. Right. That doesn't mean that all of them are going to work out. Totally. <laughs> so, but that gives you the ultimate freedom to be able to explore ideas, which is not normal in a lot of these larger laboratories where the pressure to get the next very large grant is published now. So so get, get with the program, spend your year doing this, and publish. Right? So So... There's a there's an idea in the world of algorithms called the greedy algorithm. <laughs> and what the greedy algorithm does, you almost certainly already know this, so I'm saying this for the camera. What the greedy algorithm does is it looks locally and it says in the next in the next moment, the next second, what move can I make to maximize some Given all my options, what move can I make to maximize um, how how good I feel about things, mm-hmm. and or how you know how or some metric, some metric, right? So you could imagine you could run a greedy algorithm for yourself, which is in the next second, what can I do to maximize my pleasure? You know that will lead you to eating junk food all day and being absolutely constantly hedonistic. In the long term, if you were to integrate over time, if you were to kind of consider your life. As a, on a big picture, you would realize this would lead you to major health complications very quickly. Of course, um, yes. <laughs> you know you, your your system would shut down. You'd become depressed. You would not be able to. You know you would. It would be terrible, right? So the greedy algorithm actually leads you to being bloated and dead within <laughs> within a year. Um, if you were to run it all Ex- the time. Exactly. And, and the analogy career-wise. <laughs> uh, and the analogy career-wise, or really the analogy um, kind of uh, in, in industry-wise, right, is that I see a lot of, I see, I see this in industry where we're going to make the decision that's short-term for the next quarter maximizes profit. So we're going to cut anything that looks like it's not going to come to fruition mm-hmm. within a very short time period. We're going to cut things in, you know, we're going to cut research projects that don't look like they're going to be publishable within the next period of time. Correct. We're going to cut, um, you know, so, 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 so it's cutting out anything that doesn't, we have, we have maybe, and I think I'm being generous. I think we have maybe a five year view on things. So certainly the rule of thumb for venture return, right? Is five years. Correct. Which is why you're yeah. using, and I, I don't even believe that they look at five years. Yes. I think uh, that's fair. Um, and I think that this is the reason that early stage biotech companies really suffer when they're trying to raise money, but also very early deep, deep tech, real deep tech, right? Because the average time to get a drug out is 11 years. Yes, if even. Right. And so if venture capital can only handle five, then six of those years necessarily happen in an academic institution. But you did mention flagship. And I think that what has happened is that people understood that 
the ability to, um, I mean, the, the problem with pharma problem or benefit, if you're an invent- investor, is that there's only how many possible acquirers. Right. There are, Ten? Exactly. Your goal as a small company is to be acquired by one of those large companies. Right. You're trying to get yes. in. So uh, more or less, these venture funds have understood now how something needs to be structured to go from idea to acquisition because they know all of the customers. Yeah. And uh, they can vet the sort of the front end idea with the customer and tune the research path to the customer. Right. Such that they have the maximum chance of being acquired by the customer in this case, because there's not it's not sort of a deep sea of possibilities out there. Right. Everybody sort of knows who's there. And I think that that's led to a little bit of a formulaic approach to developing drugs. Mm. Uh, and Oh, gosh, I'm in a drug development course right now, mm-hmm. and I have seen... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. I'm going to say it. While Cornell, you have given me the same lecture 12 times <laughs> because they have, no, they have no conversation between the different people who are giving the lectures. So each time I get to hear the same lecture of how you do drug, dr- oh, well, you start with drug discovery and then you, and then you get into, tar- you know, and then, then they talk about targets and then they talk about um, you know, ingestion and excretion. And then they talk about safety. And then they talk about pre-trial, trial, phase one, two, three, four, post-trial. And it's like, it's like every time. And then you, and then it was reinforced a dozen times. <laughs> and it was reinforced a dozen times, which, and, and so, I mean, but, but these, I thought fun. I wanted to go into, I, there was six months ago, if you'd asked me, what do you want to do? I would say drug discovery. It seems really interesting. I was interested in high throughput methods for, for high throughput methods for drug discovery and drug development. I was like, oh my gosh, if we can get a closed loop between data collection, uh, mm-hmm. you know, data collection and, you know, and, and, um, and drug modification and, 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 if only, <laughs> and run that loop. Yes. And use a lot of the new machine learning methods. And actually, this is where quantum computing would be useful because you're actually working with, you know, quantum mm-hmm. mechanics when you're dealing with chemistry. So, so all of this would be in a perfect world, a good situation, but it's actually not how things necessarily get developed. <laughs> I mean, right. But, but but there are, I mean, to be to be fair to pharma now, some of the m- more computationally heavy approaches have been something that pharma will invest in. Right. Uh, so a good example, Invisigenics is in New York. They're a computational company doing well, right? Obviously, Schrodinger is in New York. I mean, there's a number of... Right. Of companies now who actually uh, are they doing closed loop automation automated data no, no, collection? No, 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 to... no. No, but the idea of computational prediction of of better either better molecules or better drug targets. Yeah. Right. Which are using MLAI uh, and some of the the better computational techniques, which hopefully will be ported eventually to the com- the quantum computing world right. one day. Right. Although, you know, if if you believe everything you see in the, the, the quantum news, right, it's closer than we think. But yeah, better, oh, better, better drug design through quantum. Well, so. well actually, this, let, let's let's we'll, we'll jump ahead then to kind of what you're working on now. Yes, because this is this is of interest. And then we'll we'll jump back uh, to, to other things I have like kind of. We've we've let we, we've left a little cr- trail it's, of crumbs. It's your it's your podcast. To. So so, but but it's your episode. So um the the okay so you are the ceo of qnect am i saying this right yes 
So a quantum communications company. Great. So is is this in any way related to quantum computing? Am I and if so, yes. what's the relation? This is a great question. Uh, I think that it gets very blurred with the media this, these days. So I think it's, that I can't read any of it. Right. So the I hype, read the physics hype, and I can't read any of it. <laughs> the, uh, the hype the hype cycle has gone out of control. Yep. In everything quantum. Uh, I think that if you would like to break it down into buckets, um, well, sort of two things. Nano was very hot before quantum was hot. Yes. And people uh, like nano. And the entire idea for the audience, right, is that as you start to study things at smaller and smaller scales, sometimes you see effects at those very small scales, which don't behave like the material when you're talking about bulk, larger industrial scales. Right. And those are very interesting. And nano just refers to these very tiny, tiny scales where you would start to see these effects. Right. So there were a lot of very interesting things that were happening in nanomaterials, et cetera. Right. All of those materials people now are quantum materials people. So which is which is exactly how was the lab I was in was rebranded from being a condensed matter physics lab to being a quantum materials lab. Exactly. So one should always follow the hype with the funding. But it is true that a lot of the reasons that those those nanoscale properties were different were underlying quantum effects. <laughs> yeah. So it's not a stretch, it's just a rebranding. Yep. So, so certainly the quantum materials people are in one bucket yep. and doing very interesting things. Uh, the quantum sensor people, which are again working on things which are are not so simple to sense without having extremely sensitive sensitive equipment. Right? Is this like the quantum design sort of like magnetometers? Magnetometers. Like okay. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Yep. So that's another another bucket yep. and then there's quantum communications and then there's quantum computing okay and quantum computing of course has gotten all the hype i think in yes. this country actually not so much in europe where there's a little bit more balanced view of quantum computing and quantum communications got it but in this country quantum communications was just sort of the afterthought how do because they because it's not a computer <laughs> correct <laughs> correct so because i think everyone imagines yes, yes, that they're yeah. going to be playing the most recent call of duty on their on new their quantum, quantum computer. computer yes with their very large dill fridge, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> takes up and half then, of this room, <laughs> right? And then, and then people say, people say, "Oh, well, come on now, like, you know, I'll, I'll play, I'll play, I'll play the person that I've, I've, I've heard, I've had to have conversations with infinite times, which is, oh, well, you know, the old computers used to be in huge rooms, yes, and so the quantum computers couldn't they get to small scales? Sure, but that was 50, 60 years, <laughs> yeah." To bring them to that that space, I uh, and it was ostensibly uh, an easier, a less fundamentally, uh, it's a, it was a less fundamentally fund, fundamental problem, right? I, because I, so I do think that uh, manufacturing was a preventative thing when it came to to how they were going to shrink computers in the early days. Yeah. So learning how to do data storage on something that could be manufactured in a way that could be smaller and smaller and smaller. Batteries yep. smaller and smaller and smaller, which enable laptops. Right, I mean these these types of things. Obviously, they're great technology developments, which have to drive them. Um, the interesting thing about why why communications is important versus just the computing side, yeah, is that we just have to think about what were computers like when we couldn't use the internet, right. Yeah, so everybody had a computer, well, not everybody, I mean, few people had computers in their homes. Some colleges had computers. Again, nothing was networked at some point. Right. But ARPANET, so ARPANET's 
spun up whatever something like maybe a dozen nodes in the 70s right, right? and then by the time it, it was in the 80s you were talking about a much denser collection which eventually became the forerunner of the internet and the earlier protocols for doing email and all of these other things obviously were not anything like the conveniences we have today right i suspect quantum communications is going to need to go through the same evolution very much like quantum computing has to go from little baby algorithms into drug design yeah there, there will be these iterative steps. But we also have to think about what was actually enabled by networking computers. And uh, the most powerful examples are distributed computing. So the ability to use multiple processors in different locations as one large computer because they're networked together. Um, is that is that as big of a deal as people act like it is? Well, it was a big deal in the old days when computers were young, right? So when when normal computers were young, being able to to take lots of small processors and then solve a bigger problem by having more bits was important. Is this like what a Beowulf cluster was? <laughs> In the old days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I do think that there's a lot of... there. I, the example I use when I'm giving talks, right, is, is SETI. So the search for extraterrestrial yep. uh, life uh, was something that in the old days, everyone had a screensaver that processed data. And, oh. send, and send things back. So SETI had put out this screensaver that everyone had on their personal computers and laboratories, et cetera. And whenever your computer was asleep at night, it was actually processing data for SETI because they had recordings of radio telescope data for you know, right. and, you know enough that everybody could be processing it forever, right? But it was a very simple thing to process it. First screening, right? But in the, for, day, of in the day of Amazon Web Services. Right. Is it really needed? Is it really needed? So probably not. Right. Because kind I have, a, I have, but I the was, question is, what is the barrier to actually going from where we are now? IBM just put out their thing about what does it mean to go. From, well, their goal to get up to over a thousand right, right, qubits, right, right. right, in their their processors for for quantum computers. This is again, it would be a fantastic technical accomplishment, right? But they could hypothetically take lots of smaller ones and chain them together if they had a, a network that would support it. So you need quantum communications to be able to link together quantum computers. So if you take your qubits out of a quantum computer, you have to have a, a network which can actually handle qubits, which is not trivial. So that's what quantum communications is. I see. Oh, yeah. in interesting. That So fascinating. So what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, and I'm probably, I'm probably I, ho I hope I'm going to get this right. You're saying so. I have a, I have a, I have a quantum state. So okay. So so if I if I let me let me even step back for the for the sake of people at home. Mm -hmm. So normally I think people think of computer states in terms of ones and zeros. You have a bunch of ones and zeros on the hard drive that constitutes or you know that constitute or you have a bunch of open or closed circuits in your in your you know, on or off transistors in your processor mm -hmm. and that constitutes a state. Yes. And I could take that state, I could save that state onto a hard drive as a bunch of ones and zeros, and then I could, you know, put that onto a flash drive. I can take that, I can go over to my friend's computer, I can plug it in, I can take those ones and zeros off the flash drive and put it back onto the processor of that computer, roughly, something kind of like that. Mm -hmm. I'm being, I'm going to get killed by my, by my Berkeley Eeks friends once I get out of here. That's what's going to happen. Um, but, uh, 
but uh, I'm also the I'm also their uh, dungeon master, so I'll get to care <laughs> off their characters later. That's something you figured I am. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so right now you're you're manually transferring the information, right? So I'm manually transferring the information, um, or I can translate the zeros and ones over the uh, the Ethernet to Correct. someone else's computer, right? Um, but the zeros and ones are again some digitized version of data, right? Which can go through what is the existing hardware. So the hardware either is your memory stick, right, or your hardware is the the fiber network over which it travels, right. Okay, uh, very much like if we do a cell phone call, right, it eventually will travel through a fiber somewhere if it's not all, you know, bouncing through antennas. Why can't I digitize a quantum, quantum state and then put it on my flash drive and bring it over <laughs> to your quantum computer and yeah. load up the quantum state? It's, in your it's like if only you could, right? We'd all be very rich right now. <laughs> yes. Oh. Is that the question? Yeah, no. So, I mean, the, f the first problem is basically, so quantum states are very fragile. So unlike being the one or the zero, it can be anything, which is the power of quantum, just for the audience. Right? It's, from zero, it's from zero to one, right? Correct. You, you open up from zero, zero and one from to zero to one. Yes. Which And is... all of the infinite possibilities in between. Okay, so actually, this is a fun, I, I, this is a fun little obsession of mine as of late. <laughs> which is, which is, I mean, it's been an obsession of mine for a long time, but I've recently started to say something that I like saying. Rebooted. So I'm going to say it. Rebooted. I haven't said it on the podcast yet. So this will be my first time saying it, I think, which is that the logarithm reveals in the infinity between zero and one. Fair. But this goes back to the information question we were talking about earlier. Because the logarithm is mm -hmm. the thing that, oh, mm -hmm. I see why. Okay. Because mm -hmm. the logarithm is like you taking the log of the bit of the, of the bits to get, mm -hmm. to get. So, so you're basically characterizing how many possibilities there were, right? Right, right, right. So, okay, I'm not gonna. I'm, 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 I'm like, I'm like thinking about this live time, and I, and I'm not gonna do it justice. But if, well, what I'm saying there, and this, this is once again just for the audience, is that the log maps the the interval range zero zero through one and all the numbers in between to the interval um, negative infinity to zero, or if you take the negative log, so then it becomes zero to zero to infinity. So essentially mm -hmm. the log allows you to see that between there are infinite numbers between zero and one, mm -hmm. because you can always go halfway in between. You, you say, oh, well, how many numbers, you know, you have one half and you say, well, what other number can you have? You can actually have one quarter, you can have one eighth, you can have one sixteenth, and you can have all the numbers in between those numbers, which are the real numbers. So you end up with all the real numbers between zero, one being zero and one being uncountably infinite, which is your Wikipedia term for those at home. Nice. So, uh, but the idea is if you have all of those possible states right, and you can interact them with something similar, which has that many states, now you're doing sort of hugely parallel processing of a problem. Right. Uh, which if you were using your standard computer would not have the, the large number of states available for trying to solve this because of all of these possibilities. So therefore it's slower. Is right? it a cardinality problem? Is it, is it because, is it because you can't ever binarize to get an infinite so certainly it isn't so certainly it isn't for communication. So okay. so so the idea behind quantum communications is simply that you need a way to carry your qubit from one location to the next without destroying it. Right. That's as simple as it gets. Right? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, Good. That, the, that's simple the, enough the, for me. <laughs> right. So so uh, in order to preserve this possibility of it being anything between mm -hmm. zero and one, you need some way to transport it. So if you had the 
quantum memstick who actually did this, then that would be fine. But that doesn't exist. Right. Right. Um, so one way we can do it is to send it over telecom fibers or to send it through satellites, right? Something like this. But those also need to preserve the special property of the qubit, right? Which it's very easy to perturb and destroy this. And if you do actually destroy it, right, it, then it falls into being a binary. Right. Or is simply lost, one of the two. So this precious state, right, needs to be preserved in some way. And right now, the telecom networks and standard switching, et cetera, for digital information are not set up to do that for obvious reasons. And if you could just think of all of the devices which you need on a network in order to make anything possible. Mm -hmm. So it's not just your routers and your switches, but it's those things which, for instance, amplify the information, the, the repeaters which are along these lines, et cetera, that make our fiber optics communication really possible. You can't do that on quantum information. So the field itself has been largely driven by this idea of cybersecurity because this very fragile quantum state, if it's perturbed, collapses. Mm -hmm. So therefore you know if anybody has physically either eavesdropped on the line or tried to siphon off something on the line. And because of the no cloning theorem, they can't reproduce the information and feed it back into the line. What's the no cloning theorem? <laughs> so this idea that whenever you collapse the quantum state, you can't put it back together, right? You can't actually clone another quantum state. So maybe we can, maybe we can, what's a quantum state? <laughs> yes. So, so uh, any, any fundamental particle can be characterized with an, a number of sort of labels yep. uh, and those labels have to do with the physical properties, and those physical properties are defined for a single one of those particles or a quanta, right? right. And, and they're in their discrete states, right? They're correct. Just like, it's something like up, up, up you know, and, and gosh, this, this is so, in some sense, it's so, it feels so arbitrary, but it's, for instance, um, you know, you could, one example is, is it upspin or downspin, which is correct. roughly, is, is, the, is, it, is it a magnet going north to south? Or is it a magnet going south to north? Correct. Um, so but when, it, you, but when it comes to a molecule, the molecule has this possibility too. So right. So, so you have you have yeah. these you have it's kind of polarity. Is it north south or south north of your, uh, of something? So that's an example of a binary. It's one or the other. Correct. So what we use uh, is we use we use photons because mm -hmm. the nice part about photons is that they are already used in optical fibers. So mm -hmm. uh, it's compatible. Right. Secondly, they're not sensitive to temperature, which. Mm -hmm. It's also very useful if you want to build something that can be used in larger networks. And uh, the quantum state that we use is polarization. Okay. So, so the, the photon, so for the audience, polarization, because people are most used to the word polarization when it comes to sunglasses. Right. right. So polarizers are filters which um, have a specific orientation of allowing uh, light, which has a certain orientation of the wave to actually pass through. Yeah, which, which, which you can visually... Yeah. Those on the those on the Spotify are going to be Spotify and whatnot are going to be yes. messed up here. But uh, you can imagine a wave going up and down, or a wave going side to side. Mm -hmm. And up down is one polarization, and the side to side is a different polarization. And it's you know it can be it. And a polarizer is effectively like a filter who allows one, one of those through one of those through, or a fraction of each, depending on on, right. on which orientation it's in. So so. You can actually polarize a, a single photon, mm -hmm. and that acts as a label 
And yep. that label, uh, again, can be something equivalent to a one or a zero, right? Um, and when it's a qubit, it can be anything in between until it's measured, and then it will come out as being a one or a zero. Mm. So that's exactly what we do. So at Qnect, really what we're doing is we're building the devices that we currently have in network structures in order to, to send digital information. We're doing that to be able to host quantum information. In, in this case, I just want to be, I'm just mm -hmm. trying to be extra, extra clear. Yes. Um, which is that the one would be, for instance, the up or, uh, the up and down oscillation. Yes. And the zero would be the side, the side to side oscillation. Correct. And if you have a diagonal that's kind of partially up and down and partially side yes. to side oscillation, that's all well and good. But once you measure that such that you can actually store that and save that information, mm -hmm. once you've measured it, you've now perturbed what it was known as perturbed the wave function or collapsed the wave function. Yes. Now it's one or the other. Correct. So it's a one or a zero. It's up, down or left, right. So it can be in between until you measure it. Then it becomes one or the other. And it's the sense and, and it, it doesn't take much to perturb it. Correct. And it's very sensitive and delicate. So Correct. you can accidentally break the quantumness yes. very fast. Which is why the vast majority easy. of quantum stuff happens at very low temperatures in very controlled environments. Why is low temperature important? Uh, so the as any system starts to heat up, uh, you have sort of destructive noise of the environment around it. Everything's vibrating. Everything's vibrating. And uh, if it's... As we increase temperature, it's vibrating faster, right? Which and is more vibrations, yes, more disruptions, exactly. correct? More destruction of quantum states, correct? So this is this is this is why but why a lot of things. I love Penrose. <laughs> this is why this microtubule business and this quantum brain stuff makes no sense. Unless you like Frozen. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, unless you're Walt Disney. Yes, exactly. So, um, so a lot of uh, a lot of quantum devices, et cetera, operate in you know, something in the millikelvin regime. So for everyone here, Kel Kelvin is related to Celsius, right? Except for it's shifted by 273 degrees. So zero Kelvin is a really absolute zero. So when you start talking about things which are millikelvin, you're talking about very close to absolute zero. And zero is the lowest you can go? Yes, Unless where everything stops. Yeah. Well, you know, you can get negative temperatures, but that's a whole <laughs> yes. thing. We, another, don't get another, that. another podcast. Another podcast. Yes. With someone who understands it better. <laughs> better. Yes, exactly. I haven't reviewed this recently. So anyway, ignore the fact that I just said that and just focus on the fact that you can really only get down to zero unless you but, change what you mean when you say temperature and use a more yes more erudite definition of temperature. But basically, as you are cooling down, right, you're stilling the vibrations and, yep. and other types of motion. So at absolute zero, everything is still. Yep. So it's really easy to look at it. Yeah. Um, although it's very hard to get it to the absolute zero. So so right. So that's the challenge. Um, so quantum communication. That's the fridge. Exactly. So what makes Qnect unique is that we do well. All of our devices operate at room temperature. They don't operate at cryogenic temperatures, and that's really what the company is about. That always. Yes. So, so you're suspicious. I'm I'm suspicious <laughs> anytime someone says quantum and room temperature in the same <laughs> sentence. Always. So that's where the magic happens. Um, Great. Uh, so there are uh, other well-known groups in Harvard and Chicago, et cetera, which do quantum communications using things like uh, nitrogen vacancy centers, et cetera. Yeah. Which do operate. Was oh, that in, in diamonds? A, yes. So uh, and yeah, yeah. So the ones that are in diamonds are are well known and and definitely a lot of nice nature papers in the last few years. Yeah. 
Um, all of this stuff operates in the millikelvin regime. I see. And uh, I think the goal, right, in all of these things have been to construct what we take for granted in terms of needed things for networks. Mm -hmm. And needed in this case means what are the devices to be able to host protocols that you can use for quantum information? I see. And one of the most fundamental ones, which is out there right now, which we all know needs to be solved, is if I want to send a photon at long distances in the current fiber optic system, yep. there are these repeater nodes which take the photon, will take the light signal in, measure it, clean it up, amplify it, and resend it. Because the longer you send something down, well, as you send a signal down a fiber, the longer the fiber is, the more loss you have, and eventually the signal putters out. Right? Yep. That process cannot be done without destroying the quantumness of the qubit. So you can't use a normal repeater for quantum information. So the holy grail of the community has been to try to figure out how to do quantum repeating. And that actually is a type of protocol. So the protocol itself um, allows you to distribute. So, um, so there's something very special about quantum information. If I create a pair of photons mm -hmm. at the same time mm -hmm. in the system uh, from the same source, they uh, are literally like twins. And in the physics language, language right, we call these entangled. Yep. Uh, so uh, there's a very high correlation between the two because they were created at the exact same time. It turns out that's a very good way to to um, create something that you're going to send for quantum information because what I can actually do is I can keep one photon and send one photon to you. Right. And until one of us looks at it, then nobody knows what it is. Right. But then when somebody looks at it, we know. Is this so, the is it, there's a good shoebox analogy for this, right? I don't know the shoebox one. What's the shoebox one? Well, if you so people are always shocked by the by the um, by this fact about photons. You get two of them, you get them entangled, and now you observe one of them, and you get to know you get the information about the other one by observing its twin, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But really, it's like if I gave you a shoebox, and I didn't, right? And you have two shoes, and I have two <laughs> shoes, yeah. and I said. I'm going to hide one of the shoes from you, but I'm going to give you this shoe. And I can say, is this is the other shoe a left or a right shoe? And I gave you a left shoe. Yes. It would be pretty clear that the one that I've taken away that I didn't get you to see is probably a right shoe. Because you had overarching information about the fact that there would be one left and one right, but yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Is this is So does that an analogy break down? Uh, so depending on how you make your entangled pair, yeah, you understand how they they are going to be entangled. So when people talk about building entangled pair sources, they they effectively are doing what you're doing with your shoebox analogy. They're they're understanding they, that they're either creating something that's again complementary or identical. Yeah, they have a prior. Correct. And one of the questions, a pro, you know, just prior information, I, I guess. But of course, this breaks down with Bell's inequality. Is this mm -hmm. something you understand? <laughs> yes. So uh, I don't. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. So, no, no. It's fine. So it's a bit. I've always wanted to ask someone. So here also, I am. Well, so I. So Bell's Bell's inequality is actually in in least quantum communications, right? Is something that's rather rather simple, right? Because you can actually. So this process I was talking about with repeating. Yeah. Actually, routinely uses it. Okay. Um, Great. So. So again, let's just backtrack a moment for this entangled pair uh, issue. So 
So in quantum communications, we've established that if I'm going to send a qubit someplace, I need to preserve its quantumness. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not talking about sending just one. I'm talking about making two, an mm -hmm. entangled one, but they're going to have some property of being twins, right? Right. So we're going to have some prior information about how they're related to each other due to the fact that we've actually observed and them. collapsed that quantum state a number of number many too many times before we're using it for this applied for Correct. this application. Correct. Yeah. So uh, um, a great communication protocol would be that I create this this pair. I hold on to one. I send one to you. Yeah. And uh, when you look at it, then you know what I have, or vice versa. Right. Right. So this is. That's sort of the most basic protocol. Now we need to figure out how to do this over long distances. Right. So the idea is can, I mean, hypothetically, if we didn't have any losses, we could just keep walking further and further away from each other. And as long as we didn't break our quantum states, right, we would still be able to do this at very long, long distances. But that's not really practical for communication, which we know. Because eventually, eventually someone's going to trip and fall and break the quantum state. Exactly. Um, so... Fiber optics are a nice way to do this because they're already natively compatible with photons. Mm -hmm. But we know that there's losses if you send them over long distances. So how are we going to fix this? One proposal is to do a protocol called entanglement swapping. So now instead of just uh, one source sending you know, one photon while I'm storing another, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take, let's say, a three-node system. And the outer nodes are going to have uh, both a source in some way to store one of the pair, right? Mm -hmm. So, which we would call a memory, like what Qnect produces. So at these outer nodes, uh, I'm going to create an entangled pair, I'm going to store one, and then I'm going to send one to the center node. Same thing's going to happen with the uh, the other outer node. So, so, so hold, hold on, if I can. can I, so, so three nodes. Can yeah. I try to make an analogy on this sure, while sure, we're going? Sure, so, so, sure. so, so I, I'm Nike and I produce a right shoe and I keep a left shoe mm -hmm. in my shoe box. And I keep it here and I store that as, in, as yes. memory and then yes. I send my shoe off. But this is yes. a very fragile shoe. Yes. <laughs> this, shoe, this shoe is a glass slipper. I'm, yeah, there you we, go. We have, we, have the, we have the Cinderella. Nike's made a Cinderella um, a Cinderella special release. Correct. And if you drop it, it's, it's, it breaks. It shatters. You yes. know? And, so, and so, okay, I don't know. Maybe this isn't useful. And then the, uh, the other side did the same. Did the same thing. Okay, so they also. So, so somebody at the, at the central node is going to receive two glass slippers, one from each one of the outer nodes. Right, right. And they need to interfere them in order to know what they have. Uh, so that's the bell state thing we were talking about before. Okay, okay. So, so. Maybe here the analogy breaks down, but I'm just trying to get yeah. so people in their heads have a physical physical, physical picture that you have. You're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a Nike factory and you're Adidas factory. And they, both sent it, they both sent it to, they both the sent it to a central location. Correct. Um, you know, to some, some person who's, Comparing shoes, some hype beast. Yes, exactly. So the Cinderella's so, house. The Cinderella's right. So, Cinderella's, the, so, Cinderella's so the central here. node, right, basically is the one who, who, again, no, is looking. Yeah. So looks at what was sent. Yeah. By doing so, they've actually transferred the property of entanglement to the shoes, which have remained at the other two independent locations. So, so the goal of the goal of you and I at the beginning, when I said, if I have a pair and I give you one, yeah, and we keep walking further and further apart, mm -hmm. is that and nobody trips, right? right? Is that we've distributed entanglement at the distance between us, right? And in order to do that in very long distances over real world infrastructure, 
we need to be able to actually transfer the property of entanglement uh, over like little uh, daisy chain segments. Right. And the protocol itself is called entanglement swapping, and it's very much like what we were just trying to do, except for it kind of breaks down with the Adidas Nike. Okay, I'll, <laughs> idea. I'll, 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 yeah, I'll, give, I'm giving up on it. It's gone. <laughs> I just I just wanted people to have a picture in their head for like what the because when you say nodes, I think for most people when you when I, when I hear so a just nodes, gone, just gone three locations. Though. Yeah, three yeah. locations. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the idea being that instead of having a left and right shoe, let's say that. You know, all all shoes were kind of identical instead. Yeah, right? they're photons. So, yes, now, exactly. now the shoes are not shoes yeah, anymore. Yeah, they're photons. Yeah, go back to the normal world. But the idea being that in order to gain the distance between the two furthest locations where these pairs originally started off, what we can do is sort of share their entanglement by swapping it at the central node. And that's something that's very counterintuitive. It's one of those things that's like, wow, you're expecting this to work over. Uh, switches in order, you know, to make this all the way across the United what, States. What do you mean by swapping? So, so I, I have I have information about mm-hmm. about so, my uh, I don't know. Can I so, give, can so, I give so. them colors for usefulness? Sure. I have infor- I've, I don't mean this as in like the light color. I just mean like I'm tr- I'm trying to create a visualization. It helps me to uh, for the Spotify folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so if I have my green, if I have my green photon that comes you know comes comes and it's entangled to my to its green green sister over here mm-hmm. and i have my red photon that comes from the other, from the other location to the central node mm-hmm. and that one that one you know left the red right right and they, they, there's a pair there what do you mean when you say that you swap them what so, are you actually so at doing? the central location yeah uh, we are going to actually interfere them so do a second order interference measurement which just simply means kind of like colliding them destroying them right yep uh, at a beam splitter, which is going to to measure what came through. So right. it's just a way to measure who arrived at the station. But you measure them at the and same it, time? Uh, ideally, yes. <laughs> so that's and yes, exactly. So that's some coordination. So that's that's tough. So you Part can't exactly. So if they don't arrive at the same time, the swapping event doesn't happen. But oh, right. So, so how much to, tolerance is there? Well. Right. I don't think people have actually studied the the maximum amount of tolerance on these things, but we know from what we're building right now and from experiments which other people have done, they you're talking like you need accuracy in the picosecond Pico. regime. Yep. Yeah, picosecond uh, regime. For some reason, I knew it was going to yeah. be pico. We were getting out of which you know network tolerances right now, obviously because data doesn't have that type of fragility is uh, is not picosecond. Correct. So people don't need to have that type of accuracy. So right, so these need to arrive at the same time at the swapping station. Mm-hmm. When they do, and they actually get interfered with each other, so your green and red were being interfered in the center. Yep. Now you have the ones who are left at the the prior locations sharing some information of. So the entanglement swap was the fact that first the greens were entangled and the reds were entangled. Right. We interfered one red and one green. Yep. And now the entanglement is actually between a green and red. How did that happen? By interfering the green and red at the center. So the process of interfering. If them, before yes, my understanding was that the entanglement yes, is a statistical relationship between the for between two two sister photons that came from the same source. Mm-hmm. Why does why now are the green and the green and the red at their both originals? So you know the sisters of the two interfered neurons. Why are they now statistically related? Because you know something about the information itself. So each time you do this, you're actually learning something about what was in the other by by this process of destroying at the swapping node, right? I see. And is that information less? 
Because no, when no. they're inter- interfered, I imagine you're losing some information, but maybe you're not. No, you're just understanding what's there. I see. So, so it's all about when I when I think of entanglement, I like to think of it as the fact that you understand the correlation between the two objects, right? What right. one happen what happens to one can happen to the other because they're so highly correlated. Right. Now you're understanding the correlation relationship now between green and red. Because you just observed the correlation between green and red at the at, at the location. Correct. Oh. But what this is Oh, doing because is by observing how they're related to each other when you interfere them, mm-hmm. you have now observed by proxy mm-hmm. how the two ones at the other locations are related to each other. Correct. And you can keep doing this further and further out, right? So the thing which is oh, sort of Oh, yeah. okay, this is yeah. very clear. This is very mm-hmm. clear. I can can I try can I of course can I try yeah. try one more time just because I know I, I I've been talking to oh, my are audience. We, are, we, are we going to do glass slippers again? <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> okay. We have we have we have two we have, we have a, re, a green and a red. They have a sister green and red. Those sisters go off and they meet at a central location. Mm-hmm. We splatter the sisters on a wall. Yes, <laughs> using a beam it's splitter. Like, <laughs> we said sisters, and you anthropomorphize them, not me, yes. uh, not you, but the audience. Yes. Yes. it's your fault, listener. Yes. Um, now, now we have information about each of them um, and how they relate to each other. And now, because we know how green and red, the green and red sisters relate to each other, we know how the um, green and red that were left at the original locations are related to each other. Correct. And that way, we have actually because entanglement is just a just is just a relationship. It's nothing cosmic. It's a it's a statistical relationship between objects. Yes, unless you like the word spooky, but yeah. <laughs> but I don't. Um, I, I uh, now now you have entangled. You're you're green and you're red. Correct. I'm 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 the worst. To, I'm I'm the least likely to get popular type of physicist because yes. I'm I try to be clear yes. and I remove the cosmic from everything <laughs> as fast as I can. I'm, fair. The, I'm the most boring yeah. physicist for this reason, or if I can call myself a physicist still, I'm, I, I, we're we're all still trying. Right? So, but <laughs> but I do think that this sort of idea of how how we have to think about every type of communication is just a protocol, right? right. And for for quantum communications, it's a way of how do I preserve quantumness, right? Which is the special part of quantum communications, by building protocols and equipment to host that, right? And what Qnect does is to actually build all of the devices which create, which actually support the protocol we've been talking about, right? So Qnect, uh, the so the the founders, uh, so the professors, uh, the professors at Stony Brook University, his name is Eden Figueroa. His first graduate student, uh, Mehdi Namazi, and who you know from Clubhouse as Mazi. Yep. And uh, so he is our, our CSO now, and uh, Mayel Flament, who was uh, also a student in the lab, uh, who is our CTO, uh, got together and created this company because uh, Mehdi's PhD work was actually to build uh, the storage part of what we're talking about. So it's not so simple to store a photon. Yeah. So they like to move very fast and they <laughs> they don't necessarily like to be held, right? So, That's right. so, so the speed of light is huge, right? So, so how is it that you store one? And uh, so Medi's PhD thesis was in realizing this in a in a room temperature device. And then Miles' thesis was creating a an instrument that could do this from what was previously the laboratory benchtop version. Right. So they they spun out this company and then I met the company in my my previous role as a seed investor in New York. Right. And I have one foot in physics because of my own background and they asked me to join and that's how I ended up also being on the team. 
And, and you it, joined as a COO originally. Correct. Right? Correct. So yes, you got you got bumped to CEO. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen? Actually, it's not so unusual. So I think it's really common that when scientists <clears throat> found their own companies, everybody needs a title. Yep. Uh, but it turns out that really what scientists do well is science, and yeah. and you and there's there's nothing wrong with keeping the sort of scientists doing good science as a different title, right. as long as everybody and respects you know, whatever hierarchy you've set up in your company. Right. I think you were talking about flagship earlier, which is an interesting example of this. They routinely go in and recruit from high-level labs that are doing interesting projects with this type of sales pitch, which is, you know, you keep doing the great work you're doing as a scientist. We will put a management structure in place in order to make sure you're successful. Right. Because as it turns out, there's more to the management side than simply uh, making sure the bills get paid right? Uh, and raising money. So um, I think to find somebody you trust to do that for your precious scientific, scientific idea is hard. And what was really great is that I worked with the team for like six months or so prior to them asking me to join because I was mentoring them as part of our investment. And we had a chance to sort of test drive each other. Right. And when I first joined the company as COO, we were all trying to decide how the company was going to be structured. What was, again, they had this quantum memory. What, what would the larger product suite look like? What were the goals? It's very important, I think, whenever you look at these surveys of how companies fail, how startup companies fail. Right. One of the huge indicators are if founders have different visions for what the company is going to be in five or 10 years. And those are really important conversations to have in the early days of a company. Yeah. And super important conversations to have with anybody who you bring on board as your sort of business person. Yeah. Because obviously I am not a, a full-fledged business person, but I know a lot about at least these early days of startups and I have my academic experience. So I'm kind of one foot in each camp. Right. But I think that finding somebody you trust who isn't going to guide your company in a way which you don't want is maybe one of the biggest challenges for a scientific founder. And the reason that we restructured was actually pretty simple. It was who has sort of what job role and who could represent the company in those roles the best as what we see as our vision of the company going forward. It's very clear that Medi should be leading the scientific agenda as he has, and we're so excited with what we've done even in the last six months. Just we're on this ramp, which is really great. It's very clear that Mayel should be leading our instrumentation agenda because it's his background, it's his passion. Uh, he built a beautiful instrument as part of his uh, thesis, and now that has become the basis for what Qnect is now producing as devices. Uh, so those were very clear, and they are sides of the house that are very complementary. Right. And I would say that as a company, one of the things which is perhaps unique to Connect is that we have a little bit of a, a I would really say a lateral relationship between the three of us with well-defined roles of what it is that we do in order to help the, the company go forward. Because the team isn't that large. We just recently expanded. We hired three senior scientists during the summer. We had a, a full-time um, junior scientist slash technician who'd been working with us for a year. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Getting some, getting some of your first few hires out is a big step in the right direction. Yes, it also is very nerve-wracking because salaries are salaries and you need to make sure you can keep making them, right? So yep. that's always hard. But um, <laughs> we've been, we were, strangely enough, COVID-proof because quantum is important. Yep. 
Um, and uh, again, we couldn't be happier with the fact that the company has had the opportunity to grow. So the two most basic devices which are needed to support that entanglement protocol are, are again, something to hold the photon, mm -hmm. which that's going to be QNEC's first product really is this quantum memory. Uh, we have our first version is actually being sold to research customers this coming quarter, uh, which is a large, bulky thing because we're joking about how computers are bulky. Well, so this thing's about well, the size of a suitcase and it takes two people to lift it, but it holds one photon and releases one photon very well. Nice. But uh, we have our second version under construction and anticipate really having it tested during the summer and rolled out by the end of the year. And it's something that looks much more like what you're used to in a standard rack, uh, like the server server oh, drawers. Oh wow, that's good packaging. Yes, so so we're packaging. Yeah. Packaging was something yes. I never thought about until a year <laughs> and a half ago. Packaging of quantum devices. <laughs> and I, well, yeah, well, I mean, because I was, um, you know, Ion Q. Yes. So I was, I was recruited at Duke. Which has uh, one of the major INQ people, and actually is getting the other. Both. Now. Yes, I was going to say just just he recently recruited. GIT, yeah. Yes. Um, so so that they were friends of Art Ramirez. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think it's trying trying to remember the name at this point. Jo well, I'm not going to mess it up on camera, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll <laughs> think about it later. Uh, yeah, but but um but but I was uh, very close to wanting to go. Um, go to Duke and they were in the packaging phase and the operating system generation phase of trying to get these things to work. Yes. But it seems as if that style of quantum computer, the ion trap quantum computer is probably the most compatible with what it is you're Oh, well that's a toughie, on? right? Or is so, that not true? No, no, it's it so it's really interesting. It's a good question. Um so the 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 realities and the challenges of the quantum device world yeah. are that we are very constrained by the physical system in which we work. Yeah. So if I choose to use those nitrogen vacancy centers and diamonds, yep. uh, that means I choose to work at certain frequencies which allow me to see the quantum effects in those systems. We work in rubidium vapor, mm -hmm. and that has atomic lines that are associated with being uh, characteristic of that molecule, well, atom, actually. Yep. Uh, therefore, we are constrained to wavelengths which are rubidium compatible for those reasons. And ion trap people work with ions which, again, have characteristic wavelengths. Now, what's funny is that these three systems which I just described do not work on the same wavelengths, right? Oh, so they're, they're different sets. So, in order to, you bring up it's a very important point, and it's actually why QNECT builds more than just what I was saying earlier, mm -hmm. is that to interface devices, two quantum devices, is very tough. Right. So learning how to interface devices on a network, which is the same problem people had with digital networks before. It's just that we take it for granted now that it works. Mm -hmm. We need to do it again with quantum. So uh, we build products, our ancillary product line, which we're just talking about the picosecond time resolution, universal clock. That's important if you're going to have events that, that happen, which need to happen with great precision. Right. We also build uh, frequency locking devices. Because another thing you really need is if you have multiple quantum devices and they're running off of different lasers on different wavelengths, they all have to be synced to the same standard. Right. And those are the things we sort of take it for granted with satellites and GPS, right? Syncing to, to multiple locations. Same thing is going to have to ha have to happen for network structures. And it does in the digital world. It's just that it's not as fragile and stringent as the quantum world. So we're building those devices. Um, the other thing which needs to come up, and I think is a very open research question right now, and we're, we're excited that 
we've also put our toe into the water there, are the sources themselves, the sources of these entangled pairs. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very active research topic, therefore very interesting for a lot of phys physicists to jump into. Right. But what we want, of course, is something that's a high efficiency source that generates a lot of these pairs very cleanly with high generation rates. Right. Uh, it turns out that there are all sorts of trade-offs in these physical systems. So if you a very common structure is to have a nonlinear crystal that you pump with lasers, you do that harder and harder. You might get more entangled pairs out, but then you start to get other problems. Mm -hmm. So things like photon bunching or broad line widths, uh, these are things that while they may be okay for very limited applications, they are not going to work when you start to try to interface them with other devices. I see. And... What we're offering, the reason that we go to the form factor of the packaging piece you mentioned, is that if we are building all of the devices that you need in order to do this protocol in a network, we'd like to sell you a rack. The rack will have a few instruments in it, and they'll all work together. Oh, right, right. Bringing it back to packaging, I guess that's yeah. my, 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 that, my, my comment on packaging was, was I guess, can, can you comment on why packaging is important? What packaging is and why it's important? Because my eyes were open to packaging and now that i've seen it now that i now that i heard about it through ionq and them packaging their devices now i see packaging everywhere so i think apple was kind of a master in packaging when i think back to why is it that receiving an apple product was so different than receiving other types of products in the early days of apple when apple was still really innovating right um as they were reducing the number of buttons and not giving you an instruction manual and leaving you out there <laughs> to, to somehow discover how these things were going to function. I mean, the, the iPod, the original iPod, was an interesting jump right. to say like, you get one button and a wheel, good luck, right? And, this, and again, people learned how to use it. So there, it was a lot about the self-discovery piece, but their packaging was always this thing of like, it was an experience to open the box. Right. So I, I do think that on the direct-to-consumer side, packaging has always been something that we recognize is, is uh, obviously a big part of the branding and the sales. Right, right. In the network sort of communications factor, I think that packaging is a different question. Yep. Um, it's not like we walk into a server room and we're like, wow, <laughs> look, <laughs> look, look at that branding. Right, 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 right. So everything looks the same. It looks like just walls of instruments. But that's the packaging. Correct. But what you're, you're actually referring to, which is the most important thing, is if I know that this is how network data centers look, yep. then I need to build my instrument to fit in one. Right. And Qnect, I mean, it, again, it's not easy you obviously, for your, for the viewers, right? When you set up a, a normal optics experiment on a table in a physics lab, that optics table very often might be eight by you know eight feet long by you know four feet deep. It is yeah. as long as this couch, yes. and three times deeper. Yes, and that might actually not have the lasers on it. That might just be for the optics alone, because you have all these other support instruments that may be above or below or on another table, and the fibers are coming over. So to put it in a box to begin with is a huge transition. Incredibly difficult. Yes. Yep. And our particular technology also requires us to have some, I mean, our, our system that actually captures the photon through vitium cell. Right. Uh, there's some length constraints. It can't get smaller than a certain size because it needs to be able to actually be able to trap the photon. Um, so 
as you start to try to shrink things, there's a lot of engineering that goes into how do you put it in a smaller box. Right. We're actually committed and we've been spending a lot of time in the last few months thinking about if we want to make it into a server rack for the packaging that everybody else is comfortable with, which means fibers in, fibers out. Yep. Cables in, cables out. Drawer slides goes into a normal standard rack. How do we shrink it? Yep. And um, so we, we have some good answers. So, so stay tuned. QNECT, QNECT will be rolling out some very interesting things by, the end, of the, yes, by the end of 2021, uh, at least on, on prototype forums. We'll probably be talking sales in 2022. Right. But um, they're all designed to be in these standard server sort of modularity, modular type designs right? Uh, that we, we want to build. So I do think packaging is super important. You brought up INQ. Um, again, there are, there are companies that are in the quantum space, which everyone has understood that miniaturization is important. Yep. And it wasn't that people didn't know how to miniaturize ion traps, et cetera. Yep. It's just that after you get to a certain point, manufacturing starts to be a big consideration of whether you can do it with the tolerances that you need in order to produce large numbers of them well. Right. Tolerances. Jargon error. Yes, uh, but the error in the machining, right? I think I said tolerances earlier without clarifying it. I think I'm the one who brought tolerances in this conversation. <laughs> so sorry, everyone, tolerances. Be, be intolerant of the tolerances. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It's, the, it's the error that you're allowed to handle. and you know, it's, it's, the, it's the amount of wiggle room. Wiggle room. Tolerance yes. is wiggle room. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, I do think that as we see quantum devices starting to shrink, I mean, the, the goal, we know how to put optics on tiny things. Yeah. Um, and the the goal for everyone is to figure out how to do this better for for every quantum device which is out there. It's just that the realities of how to make the system work are going to to force a different conversation about manufacturing when you start getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yep. Instead of talking about how do you get smaller and smaller, life, you know, do lithography and end up with smaller and smaller transistors, it's how do you get smaller and smaller optical devices. Correct. And how do you do those precisely and do good manufacturing? And, they, and I was going to say, and the optics, the optics components themselves all have to be very high quality. And, yep. and obviously, again, oh, that's if we, fascinating. So, 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 so there's, a, there's a lot that goes into this, right? So invest in optical glass, high quality <laughs> optical glass manufacturing companies. So it turns out that New York State has a whole center, you know, the Rochester region has a huge number of, of companies which do specialty manufacturing, right? Interesting. Um, that's notable. Yes. So that's fun. So Qnect uh, is working on two quantum devices, which are the source and the memory. And you need a source and a memory for every one of these repeater type scenarios we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And then they're doing all of these other devices, which either enable the the multiple devices to talk to one another or to allow them to talk to the infrastructure. So some of the devices that we build because we're going to try to use common telecom fibers are to correct the bad things that happen when you send your quantum information down the telecom fiber. Right. So so if you manage to preserve the quantumness, it still can be slightly off because of drift that right. happens when you send things through telecom fibers. So we have devices to correct for that as well. Absolutely. So... So we're we're a communications company because we're trying to build a, a solution, not just a component. Right. right. Solutions. Solutions. Tagline. Uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten to do any four Fs. So I, I guess I guess that's reset a wash. the room. That, that's a, that's a, no. Thank God I don't have to do that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm pessimistic on Clubhouse, but we don't have to get into it. Long, I'm long-term pessimistic on Clubhouse. Um, just just because you can't do an hour long anything, everything has to be five hours, which is fine during COVID. But as the sun has come out, I'm less like tired. To do that. Yes. Yep. Um, 
anyway, uh, so so going 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 back, um, go, like stepping kind of away from from uh, Qnect for a moment mm-hmm. and kind of thousand mile viewing your career here. I, I first I should say that I'm I'm uh, part of the reason I've invited you on is is to hear about your company and to hear about and to hear about your you know your your time here at Rockefeller and whatnot. But another reason is a bit more selfish, which is that I want to pick your brain kind of career wise and talk about things that I'm thinking about as a young scientist and young researcher, and maybe you know learn from some of your accomplishments and or mistakes along the way. Um, one 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 big question. So first of all. I'm thinking that I may want to kind of take take a path into science and technology management long term. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's true. I, I enjoy doing the science, but I have to say that I um, I have a history of of collaborating a lot. I've been successful at pulling together research teams in in in, in pursuit of a goal. Um, all of my papers have been collaborative, mm-hmm. um, and I re- I just genuinely really enjoy bringing together research teams to do the research. And I enjoy almost the process of facilitating and getting smart people in a room together to solve a problem more than I enjoy being the person to solve it. I'm I'm a fan of other people who are doing really interesting work and so, getting them together and knowing everyone's work well enough to say, hey, you, you should talk to this person about this place where you do overlap mm-hmm. in conversation. So I'm good at synthesizing and pulling together a lot of people. I don't know if, uh, and because I'm, I'm a very social person and I mm-hmm. see management as maybe being that, but, and I, for a long time, I wanted to be a PI for that reason, but it's not obvious to me P- that that's P- actually what PI I'm, being. Uh, principal thank you thank you thank you principal investigator yes. the uh the head the lead investigator in a laboratory setting be that at, an, at a university or a national laboratory um or even sometimes uh companies that have their own research wing but but i i i hear in this uh, i was just thinking because we've been talking about quantum and these other things yes i mean the the ultimate manager in the sort of pop lore of of that field right is oppenheimer right so brilliant, brilliant scientist on his own, but his true gift, right, was to manage the Manhattan Project on the science side. And Oppenheimer is maybe, it sounds terrible to say this, but Oppenheimer is one of my big inspirations mm-hmm. in, in science. Um, he, of course, is the was the advisor of, um, is related on both the Leo Kadanoff side <laughs> and the, um, and the uh, Feigen, Mitchell Feigenbaum side of my academic lineage. Mm-hmm. You find Oppenheimer on both sides. Yes. Um, and I... But he had the talent to really understand how to manage the world's most brilliant physicists uh, at, and mathematicians at that time, right? And and if I, if I had to say I had a calling card, mm-hmm. it would be that. I mm-hmm. know how to communicate between people who are killer intellects. Mm-hmm. I, and I and that's only because I know enough, my knowledge base is broad enough to be able to have those sorts of conversations. And I'd like to have leverage that for a career. I don't know exactly where to do that. And I have a lot I, of theories. I was like, so so definitely don't try to get a degree in science management because whoever well, has put that together, it's not the case. No, <laughs> right? it doesn't seem like I'm not. Yeah, so yes, yes. That wasn't on the table, so don't worry. But I do think that um, how you succeed in building and leading teams like that is by building a resume of having done it. Yep. And sometimes those are baby steps. Right. 
So sometimes it's smaller projects where you synthesize or juxtapose uh, scientists of different disciplines in order to accomplish something and an uh, to solve some interdisciplinary problem, which right. is important, which is not necessarily your, uh, I would say, broadest expertise. So, right. so it's not a project that you would have done by yourself. Right. It's something that you needed to to bring others into the pro the problem and actually be the lead on. And you can do that even as a graduate student. I am the last author mm -hmm. on, nice. on a paper. That so I, that so I last author for the, the audience means the the usually the leader on a biological uh, publication. Right. So this was this was an Origins of Life paper where I pulled in. It was just a, me and my friend collaboration, but my friend Alex Spaeth is a mm -hmm. brilliant mathematician, mm -hmm. um, brilliant mathematician and, uh, you know, also electrical engineer, computer scientist. I mean, he's really he's. Uh, out of my years of collaborating, I have to say he's been he's been one of the most impressive people who I've met. Um, and I've I, I mean, I have this I have this funny, I guess, I guess here here's a side point. I think science and just often get thinked about as thought about as robots, but the job is extremely personal and there's a lot of relationships there. And I have this like I can feel it in my heart. You know, I have this deep love for the people who I collaborate with and I work with. And it's it's something it's a feeling I don't get anywhere else when I really f think about the teams that I work with. So I have a, I have a deep love for Alex Smith, my collaborator on this. Um, but he would have never gotten into Origins of Life had I not connected him with Bruce Damer and David Deemer, who were professors at um San at UC Santa Cruz. Right. And then you know they we kind of struck out on our own, completely left what they were doing, and did did the entire and, and by me explaining to him kind of the things that were going on in that field, he worked out and. I, 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 and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, he wrote what is the most complete thermodynamic treatment of linear polymerization, a field that had not been moved forward since 1970, since the 1970s. Okay, so polymerization for everyone on the call is? Is when you put all the, when you take a bunch of little monomers, a little little building Lego, blocks. Lego blocks, building blocks of a molecule, and they, they, they click together to form a bigger molecule. Mm -hmm. And so, and so this, and you know, we, we couldn't push, push, we couldn't push this to, um, I don't suspect that anyone really cared about the thermodynamics of this process. I don't um, know. I mean, except it... for the origins of life people, which is how we got published in origins of life because RNA and whatnot. But the story of this, I guess I'm tr just trying to tell you, tell you this as kind of a description of, of the types of, the types of things that I've you know tried to do before is I was pulling someone from you know who has a degree in computer engineering and elect electrical electrical engineering in computer science. Um, who's working in the realm of neuroscience into trying to solve this problem in, uh, you know, molecular, uh, this molecular problem, this thermodynamics problem that, and by the way, when we had first started, this is the crazy part. When we first started, he, he didn't know what a partition function was. Yeah. Because he never needed it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because he never needed it. Right. right. So this is, but I think that what you're going towards, um, at least in the education field for a while, when people started talking about interdi interdisciplinary problem solving, right. th they would call, call it something like design-based education or something like that. Mm -hmm. right? I think that these multifaceted degree programs, or in Rockefeller's case, take whatever you want yep. type of degree programs, are great for people who want to get enough interdisciplinary background to be able to attack problems which are going to need experts in those realms, but someone who, again, sees it from a larger vision which can can synthesize these these views together in order to, to actually drive them fo forward. Right. 
Um, so my own background, I started off in chemical engineering. Um, right. So I, I, I went to, I, I ended up in New York City because I went to Cooper Union, which was this school in the village, which if you are accepted, it's a full scholarship. So nice. It's one of the few merit-based institutions that's still out there in terms of full scholarships. Wow. So there's a lot of students that are there from uh, the math and science-based high schools in New York. Uh, who, it's a great opportunity, obviously, to do this. But what I, when I went there, I think I had always thought engineering was the synthesis of many different disciplines in order to solve interesting problems. Right. But then I saw the jobs that people were getting, and I felt like I had mistargeted somehow. Yeah. And that... I didn't want to do what I saw people were doing as as they exited. Yep. And then I took this wild um, opportunity to work in a basic science lab for the Department of Energy uh, one summer when I was uh, either a freshman or sophomore, I'm not remembering. And it completely changed my thoughts about what I wanted to do because I thought, oh, people who work in laboratories need to solve problems every day. And it's not simply the research they're doing. Yeah. There's always something related, and I liked the constant stimulation of the problem solving. Right. But my first, because I already had a lot of, of chemistry background, my first degree is actually in chemistry because I, I transferred from Cooper Union into Polytechnic University, which is now NYU's engineering school. And it was uh, sort of the, the most direct path was to take all of the chemistry credits I had from chemical engineering and continue in chemistry. But I liked the physical side of it, so I took all of my electives towards the physical chemistry side. And I think that my f my first, I mean, I'm, so my plug for any high school students who might be listening to this and thinking about a career in science is the best thing you can do for yourself in, as an undergraduate is to get involved in a research project. And I mean, really get involved. I don't mean go to a professor and say, what is the minimum amount of stuff I can do in order to get a reference letter? <laughs> right. I mean, go be the person who spends the extra hours and actually see what what people do and how they think and how so I was very blessed to work with again this person I mentioned earlier in the program Stephen Arnold yep. at Polytechnic University who was just an extraordinary mentor and had done so for student after student after student over the years and and really cared about teaching students to think and that's and, another yeah. thing you can actually for yeah. students out there you can find those professors mm -hmm. because what you do is you look and you figure out which professors send their students off to top companies mm -hmm. and or uh, top PhD programs. programs. Correct. So when I was looking at Art Ramirez and I saw his last student went to Stanford, it's like, oh, that's good information right there. Yes. You know. And it's a selfless thing that these professors do. So finding someone who truly believes in the mission totally. of education is important. Yep. But I think I, I think I mentioned this earlier. I by being in the laboratory was exposed. They had an extraordinarily gifted instrument builder in the lab who was great with electronics, great with machining, and simply by being there and doing the kitty projects, right. you learn from the experts. And it's just so important yeah, as downstream education. I think that the, the people don't apprentice anymore. Right. And you should think of your opportunities as an undergraduate in a laboratory as being like an apprenticeship. Absolutely. But most of the problems which we need to solve now are very interdisciplinary in nature. Yep. So it is true you can go to a lab and spend your rest of your life in like your very focused corner of the universe doing one specific thing that doesn't have a lot of, of you know, broader context. Right. But actually a lot of the interesting problems which we would like to solve require multidisciplinary uh, interaction. So I would say that first off, degree programs have become better at, at hosting students to learn across disciplines. Right. 
And in places like Rockefeller, they actually allow you to do research across disciplines, which right. is fantastic. Which is, this is 100% the reason I ended up here. Yes. Was because I saw, okay, I can do, I, game on, I can do anything. Mm-hmm. I'm allowed, I'm, it's open for me to do basically anything. Yes. Um, and there's very little that wouldn't be approved as long as it was actually something worth pursuing. Um, and if you were going to graduate here and become a professor somewhere, you could solve whatever problem you wanted to, synthesizing whatever you felt like, bringing whatever students and whatever texts and whatever postdocs. So being a, a, a principal investigator in a research context is like running a little company. Right. Because you need to make salaries. The salaries come from grants if you're in an academic situation. Uh, you have to build a reputation and a branding, et cetera. We were talking about this before, and I was sort of lamenting it in a more negative context. But, yeah. but it is true even for a small institution. If you're going to go to a state university or whatever and, and you want to build out your laboratory, you still have to build a reputation. Right. And yeah. this, is, this is one thing that I get worried about, right, which is, which is there's, there's a statement in companies, and I think there's an analogous one in, in, um, in academia, which is if you're not collecting your own data, you're not a company. Yes. And if you're not collecting your own data, you're not a lab. Right. And the issue is, is that I am very unlikely to collect my own data. But I would say that the, the, there are numerous examples of very successful principal investigators who are not the data generators in the data science world. Um, I hope that's true. But in biology, I would say in biology, that is a very hard sell. Um, depends on the department. So Sloan Kettering's computational biology department has... Uh, Again, it's a cancer research institute, so the experts- It's been a hard sell at Rockefeller. Yes, exactly. Maybe, say, that, maybe that's a Rockefeller culture thing. No, I think you're right that if you would like to become a professor of computational biology somewhere, you need to have data which allows you to get a high-profile publication first. Yep. And you have to ask why it is that a very high-end research group that has the money and the skills to do that research shouldn't just hire some data scientists to work with their group rather than give you the data to try to boost your career. Right. And I think that the only way it works is whenever you have a computational biologist who who has has already sort of melded the partnership where you have somebody who's great at doing the computational side and somebody who's great at doing advanced measurements. Yeah. And they have a dedicated partnership to going forward. We were talking about- Logan Grosnick, Connor Liston, my two- <laughs> Other advisors at Weill Cornell are mm-hmm. just like this. Logan Grosnick came out of his postdoc at Columbia, mm-hmm. and he does the data analysis side for uh, Connor for Connor Liston's mm-hmm. fMRI and um, two photon and light field data. But people should do what they're best at, and I, yeah. and even in George Church's lab, he has someone who's been with him for a very long time who runs the computational side of the lab, John Ock, who's been there for. Is he a PI? Um, he can be a PI on grants because if you're a, a research professor, because George George is located in the medical school, yep. So uh, their structure is a little different than standard academia, yeah. And Harvard is even a little bit more different than that because there's a lot of in between tiers which allow you to actually have the role of being able to to run grants. So, but is that is that the end game? Is is the game still to become a professor? Because I'm for for you. I mean, I I think that. There's a lot of trade-offs. I mean, I'm, a, I'm yeah, worried yeah. about the yeah. fact that I I don't see that many openings. Right. So you were absolutely right when you were talking about the Ponzi scheme. And that and that's what I'm concerned because I don't I didn't put 
here's what I didn't do. But we're sitting at a top 30. Totally. Sure. <laughs> right, right. So, but, but here's what I didn't do, right? Which is I didn't put in, uh, I didn't give up making $150,000 a year as a data scientist out of, out of undergrad to end up failing at getting a higher profile position later. So, so I will definitely say that as you are young, it is the right time to explore. Yep. Because going back to be a data scientist is something you know you can do. I know. Yeah. And I, it it's is true. actually the barrier to entry for a physics background person, physics and math, to go back to data science. It's not huge. Yeah. Uh, as long as you keep relevant with the current computational platforms. Right. Uh, so if for whatever reason the entire world decides to go to a different programming language and you don't know it. Yep. Learn it. Uh, yes, exactly. It yep. Um, so I don't think that you have to go and get like a second degree in data science no, to somehow I'm, or another prove to go back into a data science career. No, so. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about that. I guess what I'm what I'm mostly concerned about is ending up in a position where I have, um, you know, I, I just don't want to explore and then end up going back to the thing that I would have done if I had never explored at all. Uh, so many people end up uh, compromising, right? It's just the way it is. But I, I think we compromise in life because of decisions we make. So sometimes people go back because they have to, right? right. We, we've all seen like movies on this, right? Totally. Uh, it's, it's not even the compromise that bothers me. It's, it's the idea of, I think that there are more, I think there may be more guaranteed and varied paths in industry, but I don't know enough about industry because here, here, here's my issue, right? When I talk, I can't get advice necessarily from professors because every professor did the same thing and it was successful for them, right? And so you have massive survivorship bias. The survivorship bias is off the charts. Mm -hmm. And survivorship bias, for those of you who don't know, is when you only look at the people who succeeded. So let's say that there's a one in a hundred chance, or in this case, I'm gonna put it out there, I think it's a one in 10 chance, roughly. I think there's about a 10% chance that any given person can end up as a, um, from a top 30 university, can become a professor at a top 30 university. Mm -hmm. There's about a one in 10 chance. And out of that one in 10, um, if you only talk to the people who hit it, then you're going to get bad advice because there's actually nine out of 10 of those people who, if you talk to, would say, oh gosh, I really wish I hadn't done that third postdoc and that I had just gone into, you know, that I had gone in and done this, that, and the other, and they, they might have some suggestions, but I don't really meet those people because those people, because all the postdocs are still trying to go for professorships until you hear, and this is the scary part, and I'd never met this before, but you meet these postdocs who are in their second or third postdoc, and they're saying, well, I'm just, you know, I'm going to go and get my, going to go get my job at, you know, at X Corp. Yes. And, and because I'm noticing it's kind of a war of attrition. It's who's willing to take the, enough postdocs that you can finally get that position in that one lab at the one place. And, well, and, actually, I think if you end up in like a multiple postdoc scenario, your chances go down really? for getting a professorship because one of the issues is that uh, the top 30 schools are looking to hire the next superstar. Right. And that so, means that they want data that's relevant, hot. How many nature papers did you do in the last five minutes? Yeah. <laughs> if, if that happens to be in your third postdoc, that's great. That's not usually how it happens. Right. right? It's usually. normally either happened during your first or first postdoc or the end of your first your, your PhD Correct. or it doesn't happen. But I think that in terms of that's like, point. but like, how does someone go towards something which is a little bit managerial? So I, it's, 
I had a very uh, sort of funny moment when I, I came back to Rockefeller to uh, work in a laboratory, Vince Fischetti, who's still here yep. in, in microbiology, when I was working with a company called Symbiotic Health um, as their CTO, working on their uh, formulation work. And we did some work with with Vince because they had licensed a molecule that came out of Vince's lab. Right. And all of the uh, postdocs that were in the lab were were trying to go to these uh, meetings to become consultants. Yep. And I always thought it was very funny that when I was at Rockefeller, I don't know a single person in my graduating class that that immediately went to being a consultant because it wasn't something that was a a known career path. Right. And it's something that's now billed very often. There's a try I consulting club now. Correct. So it's billed as a is a possible outlet of how do I take my scientific degree and do something that's science business related. Um, so you do need the expertise of having bothered to get the MD or the PhD. But a lot of it also is just a way of thinking and your analytical ability in order to apply it to consulting. We just had Chris Gardner on, who is a former partner at Bain, former mm-hmm. partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers, mm-hmm. now head of iValue, which is his own consultancy. And so he just got off the last. Now we have some continuity to the last episode. And now, now he'll sleep. <laughs> now, now he'll now he'll finally sleep. So consultant consultant lifestyle was always known as being very very intense and and still is yes. High turnover. Uh, correct. So it's usually a stepping stone, not yep. al- not always a permanent parking place, right? Right. Like, but at the same time, it is a little bit of an opportunity to learn. I I personally, and this is just a, a personal bias, I don't think that it's necessary for scientists to get MBAs to understand what's going on in the business world. Yep. If you would like to get an MBA because that empowers you to open certain doors, yep. that's a different problem. And it is now not uncommon in the investing world to see people who have MD MBAs or PhD MBAs. Right. So the dual degree backgrounds. That is a door which is opened by having the MBA. I'd like to not get the MBA if Correct. possible. Right. Uh, so it's just for certain types of jobs. Right. If you want to do an interdisciplinary sort of more managerial role, I would say that the perfect like in-between sweet spot is basically entrepreneurship. Yep. And uh, what this allows you to do is the exact same freedom that you would have done for the principal investigator roles you were talking about before and being a research director for university, but now you're doing it as a company. Instead of chasing grants, I'm chasing venture capital. Correct. But you can also chase grants. Yep. Oh, really? Right. So there are grant mechanisms. In fact, QNECT in this past year, because as you know, uh, private funding has been more than a little bit of a wild ride uh, during the COVID year. Mm -hmm. Um, QNECT was very fortunate on the federal grant side. Um, so there are these things called small business grants, SBIRs, STTRs. Yep. One has a university collaborator by definition, one doesn't. Right. All agencies have them. So the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, NSF, NIH, they all have them. Right. Your odds of getting them obviously uh, depends on your topic area and you know this from the academic grant cycle. So one of the challenges with being a principal investigator is if you're not at a top 30 school, your chances of getting these larger grants goes right. down like exponentially. Luckily, I have um, I have one in here, which is I have the NSF GRFP, which mm-hmm. highlights me to the NSF as someone who the NSF likes. <laughs> meaning, gra- meaning graduate research fellowship program. Right. 
Thank you. <laughs> You're great. You're better yes, than sir. I am. You, you want to switch spots? You yeah, right, right, right. No, no, it's easy. It's easy because of the acronyms. But the <laughs> but the long and the short of it being that yes, it it is true that uh, with agencies they like to see their own progeny succeed. Yep. So that's always a very a very positive thing. But nepotism I do, is sweet. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> if you're on the right yes, side, yes, exactly. <laughs> but I do think that you know the ways to form a company. I I always say this whenever I talk to um, postdocs slash graduate students who are trying to make the transition into creating their own startups. Yeah. Perfect time to do your startup is when you still have a paycheck. Yep. And this is what I'm so perfect. We've arrived at where I was. Thinking, but wasn't sure that we were going to arrive, which is, I have to say, I think out, I think out of the people who I've interviewed on this podcast out of the people who I've kind of like looked into what their career path looked like, um, I think I would most closely align with wanting to have your job and maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> yes. Well, so it's like my, my current job, of course, is one that was sort of blessed or enabled by having the investor piece, but the investor sure. piece. I will say, so Accelerate New York Seed Fund was exclusively investing in very early stage deep tech and biotech. Right. And there's something very magical about seed investing that doesn't carry the sort of, uh, so I always think of venture capital at its stripped down elements as being something that's a little bit like flipping apartments or, or flipping real estate. Right. Um, you're trying to build something up in order to sell it and to get your best value out of it. Right. Um, so the developer side of that, while sometimes, I mean, it's obvious that you need to do this well if it's a pharmaceutical or something like this, is a different mindset than early stage, which is much more about identifying potential right. and supporting it totally. and guiding it that it doesn't fall off the rails. And one of my pet peeves right now in science in general is that people aren't taking big enough risks, that they're incentivized to be anti-risk because you can only get funding for a little iteration beyond what you did before. This is you, that greedy algorithm. Correct. And very often people are writing proposals on work that they've already done because it's a very safe bet because they have oh, a lot of preliminary data. The big I'm going to expose academia right now. The big <laughs> dirty secret is that everyone holds back information, <laughs> writes a grant to say that they're going to do what they've already done. Yes. They take that money, they use that money to do three things that they haven't done yet. One of those things works, and then they hold that data, and they say they're going to do that thing for their next grant cycle. <laughs> so people are often holding back information to use and say, oh, well, we, we know X information, and you say we're going to investigate X for your next grant. You already know that's going to work. Yes. Because so, you so. already have that data and you didn't publish it because you were going to use it. Later. But the system and, is incentivized. And everyone does that. Right. Everyone does that to the point that people, I, that was said to me casually the first time mm -hmm. it was said. And then I've had it said to me in every group I've ever But you've also seen. always been in successful groups, right? Yep. So I think as you go up in the tiers of uh, more serious research institute type yep. universities, their mainstay is having grants to support their research. So right. there's, there's a system. They have decided this is the way that it functions best, at least yep. for them to have the highest success rate. And that's what they do. Well, that is the yeah. right way to do this. But because there was a structure which was presented that rewards this. Right. The, don't, uh, yeah. don't hate yeah. the agent, hate the game. <laughs> right. But, yep. but the end story is, so what I would love to see in this country are more risky seed investors. Yep. 
they do exist. So it's not as if they're not there. It would just mm -hmm. be nicer if there were more of them. Right. Supporting really smart people that are doing interesting problems. And that was hypothetically what angel groups really started off wanting to do. Right. But if it's your own check that you're writing in order to try to fund somebody to do something highly risky, you're very wedded to whether you lose that 20000 or 50000 or whatever of mm -hmm. your own money. And they aren't necessarily the right partners to be able to fund long horizon, super deep tech type of risk, right. particularly if they aren't able to do the diligence on the technology itself. So something that the Accelerate New York Seed Fund was trying to do was to share diligence because we had the technical expertise. So we would do the technical diligence evaluations to try to bring in early stage investors and give right. them confidence that this has been vetted. This has tremendous potential. This is where this would probably go. This is what the timeline looks like. These are the next steps that they need to hit in order to not die. Yep. Uh, and I think more of those funds should exist. I was, it's just, it's the right concept. Right. But it's very hard to uh, build it with the financial reward models, which are there for venture, because you can't make money investing the first $100,000 right. into a company that's going to need $20 million to succeed if you don't have enough money to follow on in later rounds. And you have to have you know, real money that's dedicated, whether it be from private sources or government. And people with real money, and I think this is an important piece of this, right? People mm -hmm. with real money are largely 50 years old or older. Mm -hmm. And a 20-year time horizon means you're not seeing that money until you're 70 or 80. But there are people who love frontier tech. And, sure. And, you know, it has I, a bunch of different names. We used to call it deep tech, but we don't anymore because deep tech means everything. People call it frontier tech, yeah. high tech. Yes, exactly. Deep tech. Exactly. And all the things. But there are people who love it, like Peter Thiel. Right. Right. Uh, so there are people who are dedicated to the idea that you need to, you need to fund the mad scientist, right? Right. But finding those, not so simple, but they exist, which is important. I wish more of them existed because I think it would be better for our country in general. Absolutely. Because innovation doesn't happen with the iterative thing that we were talking about before. And it's very sad to me, particularly in premier research institutions, that more risks aren't funded. Um, that, again, what we've done and it's is- it's sad to me because I would love nothing more than to be a mad scientist manager. <laughs> doing, yes, exactly. Sorry. But, I, so, but, somebody, but somebody, somebody really has to support that. It's interesting. So my, my, my PhD was split uh, between Albert Liebschaber, who you, you mentioned before, uh, who was my advisor for a number of years as I was transitioning from doing <laughs> real physics over into doing biology, which I was calling it biology when it was like DNA and water. <laughs> But then eventually I started working on cells, and it was because the the former president of Rockefeller and Nobel Prize winner, et cetera, Joshua Lederberg, okay, Lederberg. Um, was uh, this, I mean, he was just an extraordinary intellectual who had such tremendous curiosity about everything. And a lot of older professors get involved. You talked about origin life. Many of them start to study evolution mm -hmm. in their later years because it's something that doesn't bring a lot of grant funding, but it has a tremendous number of interesting problems. Yep. And uh, again, a lot of the classic scientists that we read about in textbooks did evolution in their, their later years of study. And right. Josh, Josh had been doing it his entire life, arguably. But um, anyway, I joined his group who, who was willing to allow us to try to do some crazy things, which physicists drew up on a whiteboard to see if they worked in biology. Right. But he had no risk. He had his reputation. That reputation was not going to be soiled by people playing with some new ideas. Mm -hmm. He had curiosity because he's insatiably curious. 
And he always liked to see what was going on. And he thought that it was always interesting to see something pushed in a way or a frame of reference that he wasn't already thinking about. That takes a lot of security for someone to support. And, right. I, th and I think that it would be great. I, mean, I just remember a very funny moment. We had finished, uh, <laughs> we had finished uh, a, a publication worth of data and we, wrote, we wanted to write the publication and we wanted to send it off to a, a premier publisher, right? And uh, Josh's first sentiments were, "Oh, you never, you never do that until you like send it to like all of your friends, so they can all tell you what's wrong with your paper." Because he came out of an era where scientists were so collaborative and didn't steal from each other that his <laughs> that his first thoughts were, "Take your beautiful research and send it to the best people who could probably replicate your research within two months, if given you know enough resources and focused and have <laughs> more cloud and send it to nature and <laughs> yes. get it." Yeah. But it was absolutely the way he thought. And as much as I uh, I was disappointed because I was a student and I wanted to publish and all of the usual things which go behind that, I had this sort of, again, deep appreciation for the fact that his bigger goal as a scientist was that he wanted to get the science right. Right. And But I also just think it's a, it's a mindset, right? So the, the system is what it is. We know that right now it's- Well, it's a mindset you can have once you're tenured. You could, and a lot of people don't take risk when they're tenured, which is sad. Yep, uh, because they're stuck in this grant which treadmill. Is, which is yeah. funny because that was, the, yeah. that was the reason for tenure in the first place. Correct, but it's still possible, and at institutes like this, you would think even more probable because they have the opportunity to sort of freely collaborate in places. Right, we're not. The campus is relatively small. It's it's easy to have lunch with people. It's not like they're in buildings which are across the city. It's the only reason I'm able to get this thing to work, I think. Yes. It's the reason I'm able to get this <laughs> podcast off the ground. Exactly. So, But I do think that – I'm not pessimistic about it. I just think that right now this, the pendulum has swung. Yeah. So the incentives are just not well aligned with supporting the crazy ideas, but the crazy ideas are being supported in startup companies. Yep. And candidly, I think that – that's a great outcome for someone with a PhD is to go and to see what they can do with it. The New York ecosystem, which was another goal of, of our, our previous fund, the New York ecosystem is not Boston, and we know that. And one of the big differences is that there's not the critical mass of companies here that if you fail, you can go work with somebody else's company. You could just start again. So the, the turnover is not commonplace here yet. And when you have a large enough ecosystem where you have founders, which so they didn't succeed in their first company. This happens a lot, right? So they just what, turn isn't over. Isn't it normally your fourth company is your first success? <laughs> Could be. I don't know. I hope that's not true. I'm trying to count how many companies. <laughs> Typically, <laughs> QNEX is going to be a success no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah, the yeah, attitude, yeah, yeah, exactly. But you do need to. Yeah. to so you were talking about your passion for for interdisciplinary problem solving, right? And I think that that's something that is very natural to a company. Yep. Because more often than not, when you're trying to create the product, yeah, you were just talking about INQ having to deal with like <laughs> packaging design. Isn't that something that none of the physicists that ever did the basic stuff for INQ ever worried about? But it's exciting. Correct. It's and, it's. Yeah. I, I know. I feel like a geek saying that packaging is exciting, but it's exciting. Yeah. And there's there's these. I mean, I, I like the interplay. I like I like getting people in a room where where you're good at this and you're good at that, and we're going to be good at like more than what you two are good at alone together. And we're going to make yeah. this. We're going to bang this out and get this done. So I will tell you that the way investors view founders and management is that when they decide to invest in a team, particularly, they'll always tell you this with venture screening. They look at the experience of the manager 
of how many teams they've led. What are they capable of doing? Are are they capable of raising money? Are they right. capable of of bringing people together with different backgrounds and actually producing something? Start off small, Got and it. and I and I I think that actually it's a, a great opportunity to do it when you're in a PhD program because right. it's an opportunity to sort of then build a resume. I used to always, always say this to my undergraduate students. They would they would come to me and they would ask me about doing internships in the lab. In the beginning, I paid them, and then at the end. I just said it wasn't because I was being stingy or didn't want them to have fellowships. I said, you know, your payment really is the fact that you get a skill set. This goes back to the idea of apprenticing. Right. The skills which you learn, right, are the skills you carry forward. That's true also in management. Totally. And you create a portfolio, a body of work, which is evidence that you did something. Mm -hmm. And that something doesn't necessarily need to win or to succeed. It needs to just be sort of documented evidence that this is what we did. And if you know why it failed, Sometimes that's just as important. And an experienced venture capitalist will respect people who have also failed and understand why they failed. Right. As well as the person who just exited three times. I've, I, I, when I go and I talk to venture capitalists about some of the ideas that I currently have, which mm-hmm. I've done a number of times now, um, because I'm just prime, I'm planting the seeds early. Like, hey, keep my phone number in your phone book. Eventually... Eventually, I might be important. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> so, but, and I and and you know, I when the thing the thing that gets the biggest smile is when I say I've successfully burned three startups. Yes, <laughs> it ran but, three startups into the ground. Nothing makes anyone happier. It's the funniest thing. You would think that that would be a red flag, but it's nothing. It's been nothing but a positive response when I've told people this. But I do think it's because venture capitalists are seeing that in ecosystems which are healthy, uh, you have. Uh, I mean, everybody makes mistakes. Right. Every company you have, you'll make a mistake. Right. right? I'm, I'm absolutely certain of it. But you won't usually replicate the mistake. <laughs> so, right. So if it was like a big one, you don't usually replicate it again. Yeah. You'd make different mistakes. But I do think that they understand that, but also shows that you've led something. Right. And and leading is always so something that's very flawed in the academic system is that we we are all typically very focused on our own research and very myopic to succeed in a PhD and a postdoc. And then we go out and we have to become managers because we run a lab. (laughs) It's true. They never test your leadership capacity up until the first day you are a professor. Correct. And then you're managing a team of people who actually are coupled to your success as you're trying to go towards tenure. Right. So, So now not only do you have no management skills and you've decided to become a manager, but your actual job job security is going to be critically linked to the people which you now need to manage. Right. And there are, of course, some terrible stories of people who don't do this well and are very abusive towards their students and, um, and that's... Oh, yeah. And then there are ones that you're like, wow, they should have always been a manager because they're good at it. So I, I do think that what... And this is what yeah. scares me is that I do think that my ability as a manager is higher than my ability as a scientist. Mm-hmm. And I know this sounds... this. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I'm a bad scientist. I think I'm a decent scientist. I think I'm pretty good, but I think that I'm better at identifying scientists who I genuinely think are more, have better insights than I do on things. I'm not afraid to admit it, right? I I, I I think that's also super important, right? So usually a PI is, he wants, he or she wants to be the leader of a group because of being sort of the, the intellectual leader of, right. of the not always simply the person who is able to synthesize other experts. I think that happens a lot. But in startup companies, 
you you build whatever hierarchy you want. There's not this sort of penultimate PI structure, as we were calling right. it before, where everybody comes down. In fact, we were joking about the scientific lineage, right? The entire system is built to sort of have this hierarchical, you know, relation. You don't have to do that in startup companies. You right. can do whatever you want to. Is the the point is at the end of the day, it has to be some type of product, right? Right. And I guess I guess one thing that I found really interesting is that I'm not sure if a lot of people have wool over their eyes or, or what it is, but I realized that there are tons, there's tons of untapped talent in academia, <laughs> tons. As in, I've met I often the person who everyone in the lab is like, oh yeah, this person's really, really, really the you know this is the person's running the stuff. This is the person you know do, getting everything done. And I'll and I'll and I'll, I'll 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 you know I'll talk with people and I'll figure out that actually it's this quiet person in the corner of the lab who never brings attention to themselves, who is when I when I've had conversations with the person who everyone thinks is the superstar, and then I find the person who then I'll find someone who I think is the superstar, and it's almost never the person who everyone else thinks is the superstar. And maybe that's because everyone else is right, and I'm just misjudging all the time. But I don't believe that. No, well, I think that I mean laboratory dynamics like families, right? So so laboratories are a type of family structure because you you see each other all the time. Right. And the there are people who need more attention than others. There are people who who <laughs> if again because everything is about the principal investigator. Right. There are people who seek the attention and affection and adoration of the principal investigator more than others. Right. And they're they understand that that the principal investigator and the way that they're going to be handled future in their career is linked to the principal investigator supporting them. Right. So I, I do think that as we were talking about greedy algorithm and selection criteria, if you stay in an academic pipeline, you have to be very aware of the fact that your life is built as you go through your academic lineage and you have to have the love and adoration of everybody along the way. Right. In order to be successful, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're the better problem solver. But when you're talking about assembling a team, that's a skill. Right. And I think that those are the types of skills that we always, I, I hate it when scientists treat management as trivial, business as trivial, all of the, it, it is true that yes, you could do the mathematics coursework of an MBA program if you're someone who has you know, a PhD in physics, you're not going to have trouble with it. I don't, I hate, hesitate to ever call something easy, right? But you're right. not going to have trouble with it because we understand that the math is not going to be challenging. Right. But that doesn't mean that management is easy. Right. And I, I think that there are different types of analytical problem solving that have to do with evaluating people's potential within a team, mm -hmm. incentivizing people to work together as a team, incentivizing individuals to perform you know, at a higher level than they are in order to better the team. All of that stuff is not like learning how to be a master manipulator. It's, it's, right. it's, no, about, no. it's about recognizing, well, I, analyzing, actually, and, you know. Actually, it's, sometimes it's, the, it's that op opposite. It's about deeply appreciating people where they are and what at, at what they're doing. Correct. Um, so, for, for instance, I mean, I think, so I, I'm diagnosed with autism and I grew up with a lot of, uh, like, in you know, around counseling with a number of different autistic kids. And so they were like, you know, in high school, um, I had a, uh, a, a friend um, who was basically not, basically nonverbal autistic mm -hmm. um, and wouldn't talk to anyone but me and another friend. Right. Yes. yes. Uh, but this guy was, I mean, I mean, really probably the most brilliant guy at the high school, but didn't get the, necessarily the best grades. Of you course. know, he wasn't, no one talked to him. 
No, no one knew what this guy was capable of. Sure, but there are no grades in startup companies, right? Right, exactly. Right. So, so the thing was, was that I was able to talk to him. I was able to get, you know, I, we, we were able to get some fun projects done as a group, as a group, just by nature that he figured out how to code and none of us knew how to code. You know? <laughs> he, he figured it out on his own. Right. Correct. And I, and I've seen this play out over and over and over where you have more, you know, kind of, kind of, you have people who are extremely talented that everyone's ignoring for one reason or another. Sure. And it's just like they can't even it's like for some reason they can't even see it because there's some personality thing that doesn't immediately capture you as gregarious and and and, you know, like flashy and fun to hang out with. That's not the person who you would immediately say, oh, I want to go grab a beer with them at the end of the day. Well, sure. they wouldn't. Sure. You know, or a lot of people wouldn't. And I think I'm maybe a bit quirky in that I do immediately, I like immediately latch onto this and find these people. I get really excited about them. And I'm like, well, but this is also, it's like resource mining, right? I mean, I think the, the point is that a lot of people want to be told that this fits like you anticipate it fits. Like, so the, the square peg, square hole type of situation, right? Mm -hmm. So in order to have a good startup company, I need these three types of people. Right. And therefore I will assemble these three types of people and investors are happy because they were looking for me to have these three types of people. And sometimes it requires, I mean, I think that one of the things that you do best as a, a leader within a company is also to understand that you are the front face of the company. Mm -hmm. And if you were to hire the people who don't need to be talking to the investor, right. then don't make them. Right. Uh, what you do is you let them do what they're best at. And right. there's no reason to turn an excellent phys physicist that needs to focus on their work and doesn't really want to be in the public eye into a public speaker. Right. Exactly. What you need to do is to be able to, to extract whatever is, again, obviously the physicist wants to do what they do well, extract what you need from your company in that best relationship. Right, and then then translate that into whatever is necessary in order to show that this is a good team player. But no, nothing would excite me more than having a bunch of people who don't have to interface with the investors, <laughs> and me being able to pull pull the bacon home all day to a bunch yep. of people who I I've found and thought were really fascinating people who could get really cool things done. So it is a chicken and the egg problem because uh, you can't do it the first time. There's no like opportunity to do it the first time. Right, you've already done it three times. I've failed three times. Yes, exactly. Successfully failed three but times. But it's actually important that you tried it. Right. Because uh, if you were a first-time founder, you are looked at differently. Yep. Um, now the question is that whatever you want to do next, how do you how do you sell to an investor? Because I know we've talked about what you're potentially interested in for a company. Yeah. But how do you sell to an investor that you're the one who's going to be able to solve this? And right. since your skill is team building. Yep then what you need to have is a marquee of people which have themselves a sort of portfolio and record which is going to convince an investor that these are the people who are going to solve this problem because. That's a good point. And I am the right person to synthesize them because. Right. And uh, you have obviously reasons for being able to do this because, you know, both your physics background, image analysis, et cetera, because we were talking about this earlier. Right. Right. So I, th I think that that's that's where you can get a start as a as an entrepreneur but also to recognize that as you're still a graduate student because i think the the question which has come up which we we had 
actually on Clubhouse, right? Yes, yeah. Which was the, the genesis of this conversation, really. Correct. So the 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 question really was, should I should I leave my PhD program to jump into a startup company now because it's what I ultimately want to do, and right. I feel like the timing is right. Um, yeah, I always have mixed sentiments on this. Uh, if if you really are being venture funded and this is your time, you should be taking it yep. because those windows don't all open all the time. Right. If if instead this is something that sort of has like a very slow start, right? Long fuse, right? As you're trying to to get things going, you're not losing anything by staying, getting a great education, getting yeah. more publications. I, I think I think it's the latter, and I've I've come to this conclusion um, kind of independently after our original mm -hmm. clubhouse conversation. And it seems to me that the the best thing is for me just to keep steady, keep developing the tech that will eventually hopefully become um, the nucleus for future innovation um, in terms of a startup, developing the skills necessary to make that happen. Um, I have to figure out. And there are, and there are mentorship programs here. So this is increasingly true across the country, but the, uh, the Tri-I, sorry, Tri-Institutional, meaning Cornell University, Sloan Kettering University, so Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Right. I almost called it university because I get PhDs. Yeah, yeah. And Rockefeller University uh, are physically located uh, adjacent to each other in New York City. Yep. So they have shared graduate students and advisors. And they also have a shared mentoring program uh, for scientists who want to. It's called the BioVenture program. Oh. So, yeah, so uh, Johanna Lee leads it. Oh. Uh, so it's based out of Cornell, but they take uh, projects from all over, and it's always postdocs and and PhD students, and it's it's a mentoring program that really teaches you how to get the pitch deck up, which you already have wow. one, but but you end up picking picking up other skills along the way, which is just how to think of your idea as you're going forward as trying to build a business. Right. And uh, there are mentors that come in from the New York City community because there are obviously plenty of people in New York who have been in a startup at some point or another, been in a pharmaceutical company, been in a medical device company. There's a lot of these people around and also in New Jersey. They like to volunteer in the latter part of their career because they find it exciting to work with young people who are interested in, in spinning off ideas. Great. So yeah, so that's a new, that's a good one. And then I'm not sure if they're still here or not, right? But Indie Bio took, took space here, right? Pitching to them on Monday. Okay. So Indie Bio uh, is spelled I-N-D-E, um, like indie films, right? But it's yep. uh, but uh, they are part of the larger SOSV um, fund, which has multiple different types of accelerators, and that's a very specific model. Yep. Um, they give you mentoring in exchange for equity in your company. Yep. And do uh, they want equity, or do they do convertible notes? Uh, they they want equity. Um, the structure of that could be. A convertible note because they because they're so likely. early. I don't know if I have a good valuation, and I don't want to correct. So, so for for again for the audience. Uh, so when you get your first first investments, um, you can either decide to sell someone the portion of your company by declaring that your company has a certain value. Value. So that's the valuation that we're talking about. So this is what they do on Shark Tank almost always. Correct. So this would be a priced round if that was the case. Mm -hmm. Or you can kick the can down the road because you say, I'm not really sure what my company is worth. And you say, but I'm going to gamble that my company will be worth something in a few years or more than something. So if you'll invest in me now, I'll incentivize you by saying, look, I think my company is going to be worth 10 million in two to three years. 
but I'll give you this opportunity to invest in my company now and I will convert this, this loan you're giving to me at a value of my company being uh, at 5 million. So they call it a valuation cap uh, and a convertible note structure, which uh, Mason was referencing before. So, but I'm going to tell you that if my company is successful, 10 million is going to be hit easily you yeah. know, soon. So in the case that I, I then have an investor round, which says that my company is worth 10 million, and I told you that, thank you for investing in my company, I'm going to convert you at five, you get twice as many shares. Right. And uh, so there's great, great incentive for the investor to believe it, but that's what you're basically pitching them. You're saying, look, I'll give you these terms with the expectation that if I'm successful, I'm going to be worth more. So you're you're incentivized to invest in me because you believe I'm going to be worth more because your initial investment is going to be worth more. Mm-hmm. And it kicks the the conversation down the road of what I'm actually worth today. And so, and I'll let an investor who's going to put a lot of money into me tell you what I'm actually worth. But we're all going to gamble that's going to be better. Yeah. The other straightforward thing, and I think SOSV actually does safe notes. Um, Ooh. I'm not sure, but I think that's the true. So fact check me Looking on this one. It. I was like, fact check me. Um, so safe notes is a little bit like what I was just talking about, except for it's not considered a debt structure. It's called a safe means simple um, agreement for equity okay. as an acronym. And the agreement is, again, that at some point the company is going to be worth something. Right. And when you convert this, it's going to be under the terms of me saying that I, again, a conversion cap of five five million or something like that. Right. So at the time that I convert, if the company is actually worth ten million, then I'm going to get twice as much as what I initially put in. Got it. So if I invest hundred k as a, an early stage investor, then I'm going to get the equivalent of you know two hundred k worth of stuff, right? As right. things go down. But anyway, the long and the short of it is these are just mechanisms for how you would raise money for your your initial company. SOSV has very successfully they have several different accelerators, right? So Rebel Bio is one of them. Indie Bio is another. Um, they have a number on the deep tech side. Right. So they have made a sort of career now because it's a huge amount of funds under management of understanding that <clears throat> every startup company in these specific types of spaces needs the same type of mentoring and we'll sell our mentoring services for exchange a percentage of the company. And we have the opportunity to support the riskiest of ideas because everybody's kind of getting a flat investment across the board. And we want to support some of the wild stuff because some of the wild stuff might actually be the stuff that comes out. I mean, a good example of SOSV's investments in New York is the uh, there was a tissue engineering company that was making both meat and leather. But leather was actually the one that sold better in New York because the fashion industry wanted, again... Cruelty-free leather. Yeah, exactly. Cruelty-free mm-hmm. leather. But this is a big deal because, again, it's like if people are willing to pay a premium for it, then you have a business. Yep. Uh, so, again, these are just examples of things which end up being successful downstream, right? Uh, FoodX in the city, uh, the again, that does food innovation. That's another SOSV uh, entity. So, anyway, IndieBio sits here. There's also J Labs, uh, so the city is finally getting all these things. So Johnson and Johnson has J Labs down in uh, right. the western part of Soho, right, called Hudson Square, and Bio Labs, which is from uh, Lab Central, that entity that's in Cambridge. Yep. So Bio Labs, Bio Labs, and J Labs occupy a single entity called Lab Central in in uh, the MIT campus. Mm. But Bio Labs itself, you know, it's a separate entity. 
uh, also has Biolabs Boston, which sits in the Tufts entity. They have Biolabs NYC, which sits in an NYU building in Hudson Square. It's actually the original M-Clone facility downtown. Nice. So all of this stuff exists. And Biolab has uh, golden tickets, which are sponsored by Sanofi, um, BMS, and Beringer Ingelheim. Yep. Right? And all of those right, are basically scholarships to work in these spaces. Mm. So there are lots of opportunities to take a fledgling idea and see if you can move it forward. But you don't want to be in a situation where you are trying to get a salary at the same time you're writing for grants. So that's something right. I can tell you. I've seen that time and time again that somebody's like, when I graduate, I'm going to try to take an idea forward. Mm. The time to start thinking about writing SBIR grants for to support your business, et cetera, is while you still have a salary. And that's kind of why I'm thinking about doing this in parallel with my PhD. Mm -hmm. I'm just not sure when the right time to take funding is. I don't think that idea is developed to the extent that I'm not, I'm not sure how developed the idea needs to be before I take funding. And that's probably a whole other conversation. But I do but, think that this is a good, it's a good time for you to get involved in mentoring programs that don't take equity. Yeah. So things like the BioVenture program. Great. And other colleges have similar types of programs. So yeah. these are the right types of things to be thinking about now, because what you'll start thinking about is how do I want to structure this as I go forward? And yeah. how, how am I going to pitch the sort of like sales back end? Totally. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, team building, it's a skill set, so sell it. Right. right. So, so it's like selling it as a skill. Right? Totally. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming here. It's been fun. And this has been, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's been very fun. Um, any, my last question mm -hmm. has, has been and is, is becoming, and this is becoming a staple question for the podcast, which is who should I interview next? <laughs> so... I know I, to I told you this because I thought you were going down the neuroscience road before. So um, I'm always such a big fan of people who have decided to keep it broad and stay creative in academia. Yeah. Right? So uh, definitely I would still recommend uh, Bill Bialik at Princeton. Yep. I think that that's because... Let's hope we can get him into New York sometime soon. But he's a great example of someone who started off as a theorist still is a theorist technically, right? Yeah. Started off as a theorist, but in the very, I would call them, there've been waves of biophysics de developing as a discipline, but at least in the earlier days of, of neuroscience, became involved in thinking about a very fundamental question about how does how does information happen in, in neural systems, right? I'm a huge Bill Bialik fan. Yes. I would... Uh, it would, that would be a wonderful interview to get on. But it is, uh, it's the abstraction is what we're talking about now. I mean, when we think of information theory, certainly it plays a huge role in neuroscience. Right. And how is it that these pulses of little cells end up being something which is meaningful in terms of perception? Right. This is huge. And Bill was a fellow at NEC Labs um, at the same time Albert was. Oh. And in fact, came to Princeton when NEC uh, finally sort of collapsed their basic research efforts. But the book Spikes uh, that was was put out was when Bill was still at NEC, and a lot of the people who are on that that particular book were actually at NEC Labs. It's funny you hear about right? things twice always, right? Mm -hmm. You never hear about something once. You hear about it. Yes. You hear about it in threes or something, right? Yes. So I yeah. heard about spikes yesterday in, yes. in in our lecture. It was the first time I've heard about spikes. But it's a great it's a great treatise about thinking about again the abstraction of neuroscience into this more information theory realm. For perception, yeah, right? because at the time NEC did a number of very interesting uh, that they supported a number of investigators who were really trying to think about how to quantify the 
the information, for instance, for so the compound eye of an insect, right? Um, they they literally had like a little fly that was mounted on a cart, you know, with the video cameras. So the video camera is taking an image of what the fly should be saying. You have to quantify the amount of information in the video scene, and then they have the fly itself, you know, actually with you know microelectrodes in it, and they're doing the recording and they're trying to to again deconvolve basically, right? There's there's information in a scene. The scene is continuously changing. That is causing some type of spike train right. at, at the base of a compound eye. How did the two relate, right? And like, what what crazy algorithm, right, is going to like one equals the other? But these are very interesting fundamental questions because nature has engineered it, right? So it's the reverse engineering of a system that you know that works, right? But to try to understand it, to whether there's anything to be gained in terms of our engineering, because all the time. You always see this uh, the mimics right that are out there of like things people do well like the geckos to keep paws right? totally <laughs> so, so so the idea of like nature already does that well geckos run up walls can humans you know somehow or another engineer something so that I can have gloves and go do up the walls same or, thing right yeah, yeah exactly so same thing is true for when people started thinking about how do we build better microprocessors right uh, if we understood more about neural architecture and the, the processing, could we do better? At the um, at CERN, the pre-processing for a lot of the detectors was informed by the retina um, by way of Professor Sasha Scher at UC Santa Cruz, who now does biophysics. Oh, fun. He was so, inspired by the retina, built detectors based on it, then started studying the retina more in depth. Another thing I'd like to, I mean, at least a shout out towards Bill. I mean, so one of the reasons, as you mentioned, my career has been a little bit all over the place. Yeah. I very intentionally left a postdoc at Harvard to go to Hunter College, which is part of the city university system, which is part of the public college system here in New York. Yep. Because I think it's extremely important to support good science and good research happening at schools that are not in the top 30. Right. Uh Specifically in the areas where you know that you have students who are highly motivated to try to succeed, which New York City obviously has a huge population of Absolutely. immigrants who who don't have the opportunity to be going to these absurdly expensive schools. Right. Um, so, uh, Or at the very least in my history of mentoring such students now that I've done some of that, it's not even that they can't afford those schools because actually they can. Mm -hmm. This is actually a really – this is actually a really important misnomer, right, which is actually they can afford because these schools have massive funds for helping students who are low income mm -hmm. and they've been told that they can't afford them their whole life and it's because they believe they can't go there. And so mm -hmm. I've actually had to talk a number of these people out of the idea that they can't afford to apply to Columbia because they can get a fee. Maybe this wasn't true 20 years ago, but now you can get a fee waiver. Mm. You can go. You will get almost, you'll have almost, you might have less debt than you would if you went to a public college. Yes, um, it's if, possible. If you can get in. So I think it's, I think, um, I think if anything, I've had to convince students to reach more. Mm -hmm. um, uh, not that they are applying to these schools. But I will say also travel in. is a big deal. So if you are the only English, English speaking member of your household. Yeah. That your chances that you also are trapped in New York, but of course you can go to Columbia. That's right? why I mentioned Columbia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But so one of the things which I've always admired about um, though not everyone can go to Columbia. This isn't a scalable <laughs> solution. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that I've admired about uh, Bill Bialik through the years is also his dedication to, to education, mm. because I think now he runs. So as as you have been mentioning, all of these nice California centers the sort of flagship for a state school that 
completely rebranded itself as having an extraordinary physics anchor, right, is UC Santa Barbara. So the Kavli Institute is really- Tell me about yeah. it. What an, that was the only, the only, the only other school than Rockefeller and Duke that really caught my eye was Santa Barbara. Not only because they happen to be located on the beach. <laughs> well, I grew up thirty minutes or thirty minutes to an hour from Santa, an hour from Santa Barbara my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. So that never, that yeah. never. That wasn't that wasn't. That was not the problem. The problem actually was that it was too close, and graduate student pay was so low mm -hmm. that there is no chance that I was going to be able to live In even a slightly reasonable <laughs> life. Yes. As a UC, I mean, I mean, UC grad students have holes in their shoes. I understand. I, but this is again, it's the system is broken. Yep. But I will say that um, so so Bill was certainly involved in the Kavli Institute as it was coming online. He's done something very similar at CUNY now. So yep. that's the City University of New York. Uh, so at the Graduate Center, he started an initiative for theoretical sciences, which again is supposed to be a center for being both a stopover for visiting scientists who are coming through yep. that are in different disciplines, but also acting as a hub for interdisciplinary theoretical work to happen. I'm going to try to get over to Kavli during my, my, my your, your West Coast stay. But yeah. I do think this is something we always have to invest in. So not only should professors who have the luxury of being tenured and secure invest in the sort of wild card ideas, yep. but they should also invest in the system around them Absolutely. if they care. And I think Bill is a nice example of someone who has, has taken note that playing a role in that is also important. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, again, that's just a little soapbox moment. I, of, yeah, that's, that's that was the whole point. That's, that's why I asked this question. <laughs> yes, it's exactly. an important question. Uh, follow up, is there anyone in New York City? Because one of the difficulties right now is getting people it's like, to travel. It's like, happens to be in New York City, but yes. Oh, he does? <laughs> yes. Oh, he lives here? <laughs> yes. Oh. Yes. So. He lives here and he... He takes the train to... Yeah, reverse commutes to Princeton, though. Yeah. Oh. But okay. he was actually at Rockefeller for quite some time, so you missed him during the years that he was here. But he Oh, was, like, that, that, that explains why you're recommending him. Because when I hear yeah. Princeton, I think, oh, he lives in New Jersey. But he lives in... Yeah, okay. he lives in New York. Yeah, but the... Um, oh, that's perfect. Then I can reach out. But I also think... Uh, I mean, I was just trying to think of uh, who are also some interesting guests who have crossed over into the entrepreneur space. Um, from the professor side, right? So it's funny we don't have as many here as as Boston, so or 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 not from the professor side. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I want to avoid being a professor. <laughs> but uh, people people who have had successful companies in the uh, just thinking to who would be here for the interest in the neuroscience, etc. So there's a. Um, there's a professor at Hunter College who ran one of the, um, again, there was a, a lab that had several subgroups, yep. uh, Peter Mombart, who was here, a neuroscientist. And one of the subgroups was led by a professor named Paul Feinstein, who now was at Hunter College. Cool. And he worked on the molecular genetics of the olfactory bulb, which was the larger group's interest for many yep. years. And one of the fundamental questions he was very interested in is uh, the, so again, the olfaction system is another interesting sensory, sensory system, but one of the things which is extremely interesting about it is that different cells end up having a, a bias towards a specific receptor mm -hmm. for, for 
again, it's detection, uh, which again works in concert with all of the other ones in order to, to, but there's a dominance thing that happens in terms of which receptor will actually be expressed. So uh, he started thinking about this question, doing some basic research on it, and then figuring out how the choices get made and how you could overexpress one to become dominant. Yep. Such that you could actually make a mouse that had a preference for like a single odorant receptor mm-hmm. called super sniffers. <laughs> because, That's very fun. Yes. But it turns out that if you could do that, um, you now have a way to have sort of a collection for a, a sort of artificial nose. Mm-hmm. If you could harvest or and or synthesize these things uh, independently and put them on a chip, yep. So he has a spinoff company which uh, is, was originally called Mouse Sensor, but because the fragrance industry is moving away from having animals, that wasn't so great. But uh, they rebranded themselves with a name that has nothing to do with animals, right? But uh, they were in Alexandria Center, and uh, the, I, I heard someone working on this, uh, working with one of these at uh, Cold Spring Harbor. Yeah. So this is basically a nose on a chip. Yep. But it, uh, so he had a postdoc at Hunter who ended up spinning out uh, the company, which is now called Yes, and it's in the Alexandria Center. When I was mentioning all the other incubators, I forgot a very big one, which is Alexandria Launch Labs, which is located in the NYU hospital area. Great. So Launch Labs also has another presence in Columbia now. Um, Excellent. They don't have a formal mentoring program, but they are supporting um, young companies to, to do their work. They have a seed fund behind it. Anyway, um, Yes actually has uh, investment from IMEC, which is the major chip uh, producer in Belgium, mm-hmm. and it does lots of stuff for Samsung, et cetera. And it's that synthesis of bio and chip, because you're talking about building teams, that's a really hard one. So, so even, even, even trying to learn how to grow these things is a big fundamental research question, and how do you engineer the animal in order to produce the things you want? Totally. And then now how do you interface soft bio tissue stuff with chips? That's hard. So, and then the chips themselves have to be very specialized. So then you need chip experts. So it is a big interdisciplinary problem. So her, her name is uh, Charlotte, the CEO of this, and she's at Alexandria. And I think she might be another interesting one because she can tell you the journey because she also used a lot of the mentoring programs in New York city. Perfect. Yeah. That sounds like another great follow-up. So we we can, we can, maybe you can introduce me offline and we can get that set up. Be happy to do it. But that's another nice example of a big interdisciplinary problem solving moment. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you. This is great. I'm really, really appreciate you being here and um, looking forward to next uh, conversation. Next conversation. Yes. Thank you for having me. It's great. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Solutions. If you enjoyed this, please share this with your friends. Every share really helps me out. Word of mouth is how this is building. I don't have money to run ads. I don't have money to start buying promotions of any sort. So if you can share this with your friends, that is a big, big step in the right direction for growth on this channel, um, as well as all the other sources that Spotify, Apple Music, rate that five stars if you can. Uh, We are on anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, all the rest of it. You can find me anywhere. And please, 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 the more that you share, the better this gets, the more guests I'm able to bring on, the faster I'm able to turn out episodes. So that really helps me out. Um, Also, uh, if you like, please join our Discord community. We have a Discord community. It is links in the description. You can pop on over there. We do math from five to seven EST on most weekdays. And if you can't find me there, I do Q and A's every once in a while to talk about previous episodes. 
and um, we'll have one for this episode, I'm sure, sometime within the next couple of weeks. So please pop on to there if you're interested. You can meet a lot of interesting people uh, if you hang around. And I think that's pretty much it. So thank you again for listening to the episode. Have a wonderful rest of your day, night, evening, etc. And I will see you on the next one. All right. Bye.